Welcome to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and be sure to join our group on Facebook. Now relax, and enjoy the show. For a Christian sci-fi with humor, adventure and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey. Travel with Jarl through the universe and several dimensions as he unearths items to help those struggling to survive on Earth during the catastrophic conclusion of the age. Gracegrows.com has more information. Read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey by Grace S. Gross. P-O-S-T! P-O-S-T, Post, the serials you like the most, brings you the Roy Rogers Show, starring the king of the cowboys himself, Roy Rogers. It's Roundup Time on the Double R Bar. So saddle your horse, cause we're gonna ride far. The Double R Bar Ranch transcribes stories and songs of the real West with the Whippoorwills. The wisest trail scout of them all, Jonah Wilde, played by Forrest Lewis. The Queen of the West, Dale Evans. And in person, the King of the Cowboys, Roy Rogers. <laughs> Well, howdy, folks. This is Roy Rogers. Buckaroos, I'm real particular about what I recommend because I know the fellow who lends his name to just any old thing soon loses his friends. But I'm telling you this, you can count on anything bearing the brand name Post because Post cereals are good. So get your mom to put some on the shelf and try them, won't you? Well, sir, we're about rid of Don Wallace who runs that hangout for criminals in Mineral City. He's wanted on a serious charge up north. And the authorities are sending a man down to get him. He should be on the trail here right now. Oh, boy. Hey, Fred. Look up there, that, that mountain trail. Gee, he must have lost his mind driving at such a speed. Yeah, he ought to know better than to drive a car on a narrow trail like that. If he takes one curve too fast, Johnny goes a hundred feet. Hey, Fred, he's gone over the edge. Yeah. Well, let's get on to Don Wallace's place before the law gets us. Oh, wait a minute, Fred. Bank messengers, cattle buyers, people carrying big rolls of money use the mountain trails a lot. Huh. Might pay us to ride over and see if that Umbre was carrying anything we can use. Well, I guess we wasted our time, eh, Bruce? Maybe not. That paper important? It's a warrant for the arrest of Don Wallace. The Don Wallace we know? The one in Mineral City? Yeah, this somebody here is a law officer. He was on his way to get Wallace and take him back up north for trial. It must be Wallace is under arrest in Mineral City, then. We better keep away from there. He can't protect us if he's in bed with the law himself. Yeah, hold everything, Fred. With this badge and these papers, we might be able to do Wallace a favor and ourselves, too. Yeah. There's no reason why I can't be this guy and pick up Wallace myself. Mm, that's risky. It's worth a risk. You wait here while I make the try. I think this is what we wanted for a long time. I don't mind telling you we'll be glad to get rid of this man, Wallace. Well, we're just as glad to get our hands on him, Sheriff. We've been looking for him for a long time. Here, want to sign this paper? Well, what? The receipt for the prisoner. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Better start back with him as soon as I can. I know you won't mind that, will you? 
Pull up your horse, Wallace. What's the idea? Pull up your horse, I said, and oh boy. Are you the law or not, if you are? Get off your horse. Sure. Fred? Fred, where are you? Right here. Now, come on, I got him. Where is all this? You can't take as long as I thought it would. Now, Wallace, my name is Bruce. Leslie Combs Bruce III. Bruce! What you said? This is Fred Pappard. Fred! But I got word about you boys. I was to hide you out for six months. So instead, we're hiding you out. Yeah, you're free, Wallace. We're not the law at all. We pulled a fast one on the law. Boys! <laughs> <laughs> this is the greatest thing that ever happened. I was to do you a favor. Well, maybe you can still do us a favor, Wallace. How? Well, we'd like to make a deal. How can I turn you down? Well, now, you're free, but you can't go back to Mineral City. I can't even stay in Paradise Valley. Well, suppose Fred and I was to take over your place and run it. Why, Nobody's going to bother us there. Nobody knows us. We could run it and send you a share of the profits. You won't be doing any of the work, Wallace, or taking any of the risks. And you got your freedom. That sounds fair enough. Well, let's shake on it, then. Now, you take another name and let us know where you are so we can send you your cut. Address us at your place. Paradise Valley breathes a sigh of relief now that Don Wallace is gone. But two men, Fred Pappert and Leslie Bruce, move in and produce a bill of sale to show that Don Wallace's place is theirs. No one disputes them, and the place continues to be a hangout for criminals. Fred Pappert and Leslie Bruce do, however, make one mistake. They move into the Eureka Hotel, Dale's Hotel, and attempt to conduct part of their business from there. Hi, Roy. Jonah? Hey, what's all this about you having trouble, Dale? Yeah, now, now, Dale, uh, this ain't something that'll take long, is it? I'm pretty busy today. Jonah has to get his saber sharpened and his medals polished, Dale. An old girlfriend is going to call on him. Honest? Now, <laughs> Roy Rogers, you're bearing false witness. You're just well, a saber. Well, why does he have to sharpen his saber? Is he going to skin her? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> no, now, 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 just a second here. Glory ain't an old girlfriend of mine at all. Gloria? Yeah, Gloria H. Hanrahan. Gulpin' Glory, we called her. <laughs> yeah, and at one time she was General Thomas Kenneth Rose's sweetheart. Oh, I tell you, she was a pretty little thing. Mm-hmm. Blonde as a white leggin' pullet and dainty as a hummingbird. Well, why is she coming to see you, Jonah? Well, <clears throat> next Thursday's Thanksgiving. I say next Thursday's Thanksgiving, Dale. <laughs> and every year I make a practice of cooking up a turkey and sending it to my old general. Sort of sentimental, you know. How nice. And this year I heard Gloria was in the neighborhood, so I thought it'd be appropriate to have her deliver it. Uh, you're all right, Jonah. Oh, my goodness. They used to have great times together. <laughs> Somebody from the regiment would kill a buffalo for, for food, you know. And them two would just sit down together on a log. Him so brave and her so dainty. And say, her so dainty. Mm-hmm. And they'd eat their supper there. The general always having a steak and Gloria a whole hind leg. Of a buffalo? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had quite an appetite. That's why we called her Gulpin' Gloria. And then after supper, they'd Dale, go out... Uh, what was it you wanted to see us about? Oh, boy, then was the time. Well, it probably isn't very important, Roy. But those two men who took over Don Wallace's joint, moved in here. Oh, and ever since, there seems to be owl hoots all over this place. Fred Pappert and Les Bruce, you mean? Well, why don't you just tell them to break camp and get out? Well, I did, and they just laughed at me. Laughed at you, huh? Well, we can attend to that right now. 
Howdy, Sheriff. Howdy, Dale. My deputy around anywhere? Howdy, Roar. Howdy, Sheriff. Howdy, Ten Star. No, I haven't seen him, Sheriff. Well, if he comes in, tell him I'm riding the trail between here and Squaw Creek. Roy, if uh, you and Jonah aren't busy, I'd like to have you come along. What's up, Sheriff? Don Wallace and the officer who came for him never got back to Placer Gulch. What? How could that be? They disappeared. Nobody's heard from either of them since they left. I'm to cover the trail between here and Squaw Creek. Well, if you'll wait one minute, I'll go with you, Sheriff. There's a little job upstairs that needs to be done, but it won't take long. Well, I better go along, Roy. You wait here, Jonah. This is something I want to do myself. Open up and find out. I don't like that kind of talk. And I'm not used to taking it. Are you Les Bruce or Fred Pappert? Who wants to know? Rogers is my name. (laughs) Roy Rogers, I suppose. That's right. Where's your partner? I want to talk to you. Get outside. Nobody told you you could come in here. You need some help, Bruce? Uh, There won't be any trouble unless you start it. All I came up for was to tell you that Miss Evans needs this room for other guests. We like it here, Rogers, and we intend to stay. Yeah, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to help you pack right now. That's what you think you're up to. Fred lunges, catching Roy in the jaw. Roy staggers. As he does so, Bruce comes forward, swinging with the right of the left. Roy has his back against the wall. Takes several more blows before he sees open. Then Roy delivers a straight lift that catches Fred square on the mouth. Fred goes down. Roy wheels. He goes after Bruce. His fist cutting, driving, pounding. Bruce is staggering. Bruce is down. Now get yourself together. Get all your stuff together and check out. You won't have time to pack. Just throw your clothes over your arm and carry them out that way. Uh, You've got to give us a chance to pack, Rogers. We... We don't even know where we're going. Take your things across the street to that place you're operating over there. You can... Hey, wait a minute. Uh, What do you want? What's that sticking to the shirt you just picked up? Looks like a lawman's badge. Roy steps toward Fred to take the shirt. Fred, don't let him get his hands on that shirt! Fred hesitates. He looks about wildly. Roy is between him and the door. There's only one possible means of escape. The window! He jumps through to the street below. Bruce follows. Hold it! Stop where you are! Roy draws his gun, shoots over their heads, hoping to stop them. The two men don't hesitate. They head straight for Don Wallace's place. Their own place now, where they know they have friends who will protect them. Roy races down the stairs to the lobby. Come on, Sheriff. Jonah, over to Don Wallace's old place. What's the matter, Roy? I'm right with you, Roy. What was all the shooting for? They've got a lawman's badge. And a man who controls Al Hoots and wears a lawman's badge is too dangerous to be running loose. I'm sure lots and lots of you folks are already enjoying new crinkles often for breakfast. Because that unique sugar-coated flavor makes crinkles the one really different rice cereal. Mmm, candy-kissed rice. It's twice as nice. But say, how about crinkles whenever you're hungry? After work or play, any time. Crinkles are one swell snack. As Roy Rogers' old pal Jonah often says, Crinkles? Why, always keep a box handy right in my saddlebag. Never know when I want a handful of crinkles. Or do I? <laughs> sure, right now. Mm-hmm. Candy-kissed rice. It's twice as nice. I say, candy-kissed rice is twice as nice. Yes, for breakfast and snacks, the whole family will have a circus eating crinkles. The new rice cereal that's sugar-coated. So don't be caught short. 
Get several boxes of new crinkles tomorrow. Look for the red, white, and blue package with the crinkles clown right on the front. Okay? Don Wallace was delivered to a man identifying himself as a law officer from another state. Nothing more was seen of either the officer or Wallace. About this same time, two men took over Wallace's old place of business and moved into the Eureka Hotel. They refused to leave when Dale asked them to do so. Roy went to their room, saw a lawman's badge on one of their shirts. The two men, knowing that the stolen badge would be identified if Roy got his hands on it, leaped from the window and raced across the street toward Don Wallace's place. Roy, Jonah, and the sheriff are after them. Jonah, sheriff? Yeah, right with you, Roy. This is my fight. Stay behind me. Stay behind you? What do you think I am, a colonel? All right, Bruce. Where are you? Come on, Pappert. Show yourself. Is that the sheriff with you, Rogers? Mm, that there sounds like a peace field, Roy. It's the sheriff. And I'm with Rogers all the way. I'm glad you're here, sheriff. We'll save us going out to look for you. We want Rogers locked up for assault and battery and for attempted murder. I've seen you somewhere before. Uh, of course you have, right here in Mineral City. Fred Pappert and I dickered with Don Wallace two months before we took over this place. Now, come on, get this man out of here. We're preferring charges against him. I'll have to do it, Roy. Yes, he Now, listen, you tin-starred lawman. You try to take Roy Rogers to jail, you'll feel the cut of my saber. Stand out of the way, General's boy. I'll charge you down. I say I'll charge you down. Lay your dirty fist on Roy, and I'll ride right on over you. Well, that's enough, Jonah. Well... Let's not put the sheriff in an embarrassing position. Come on, Sheriff. I'm ready. All right, Roy. So nobody can beat you, huh, Rogers? You always come out on top. Well, maybe you got that reputation because you never happened to meet up with us before. But you've met up with us now. Oh, Pooh. I say Pooh, Pooh, Pooh. The sheriff leads Roy away, takes him to the sheriff's office just as he would anyone else. Roy is to be charged with attempted murder, assault, and battery. Jonah follows, and a moment later, Dale joins them. What is it, Roy? What happened? He's gone and arrested Roy. Oh, Sheriff, you didn't. Don't worry about it, Dale. Bruce made the complaint. I have to prefer charges, but there's nothing that says I have to be in any hurry about it. I'm so dead mad I could spit butter beans. Well, Roy, why did you make so much fuss about a lawman's badge? What lawman's badge? Well, they've got one, and they jumped out the window to keep me from getting it. But why make such a fuss about it? Those owl hoots aren't entitled to a badge, Dale, so it must be stolen. If they stole it... They must be using it unlawfully. Yeah, Roy, we ain't through yet. I'll keep fighting whether you're free or not. I'll fight everybody, even including old Shuckbrain here. Now, uh, Jonah. Uh, what about your lady caller, though? Huh? Oh, Gulpin' Glory? Yeah, she won't mind waiting for me. Besides, I waited two whole days for her once, when General Rowe was supposed to go off on an inspection tour and didn't. <clears throat> Roy, <laughs> I'll get the badge away from them, too, even if Glory and the General both are mad at me. Well, thanks, Jonah, but... Uh, I'm afraid there's not much use going back to the hotel. They pulled this trick so they'd have time to get rid of the badge. And their trick worked. We'll just have to wait. Roy is right. He's guessed exactly what is in the minds of the two outlaws. Even at this minute, they're meeting in the back room of Don Wallace's place, making important decisions. We should never have kept the badge, Bruce, or the papers either. I know we shouldn't, but I thought they might come in handy again sometime. Those hombres will be back. 
From what I hear about Rogers, he never gives up. We'll get rid of the badge and the papers tonight. We'll take them out and put them with the guy who had them before we did. The lawman who was killed, sure. Why, that'll clear us, too, in case anybody ever finds him. Well, stick the badge and the papers here in the safe till after we're closed tonight. We'll come back when everybody in town is asleep, about midnight, say. We'll get rid of them then. A few hours later, Roy is free on bail. He and Jonah are in the hotel lobby with Dale, making plans for their next move. Yeah, where'd that, where'd that lapdog hound called Sheriff go? The sheriff is riding towards Squaw City, looking for the trail of Don Wallace and the lawman who disappeared with him. Yeah, just use that as an excuse, because he thought I was going home to get my saber. Tell you the truth, I'm kind of glad he's gone. Oh, afraid I'd slash him to pieces, huh? No, but uh, I figure on looking for that badge, and <laughs> he might not like the way I go about it. Won't uh, Fred Pappert and Les Bruce have thrown it away by now, Roy? Well, maybe not. They've probably hidden it in Don Wallace's place somewhere. A badge can be useful to outlaws. Yeah, but it'll be pretty hard to get at it there. The place always has a lot of men hanging around. Well, not after midnight. Roy, you're not going to break in, are you? Oh, Roy, that's burglary. You're playing right into that old shuck brain sheriff's hands. Are you afraid, Jonah? No, only for you, Roy. I just don't want nothing to happen to you. Not for my own sake, neither, but, but for the sake of all the folks that need you and the folks who look up to you. Well, thanks, Jonah. Roy, I don't believe you've ever had a nicer compliment. We'll get this job done and safely, too. Uh, what if we do have to take a chance? It's worth a chance to make a wrong right. The darkness of midnight settles over Paradise Valley. Two men on horseback come through the alley behind the old Wallace place. Both are alert and watchful. When they arrive at the back door, they stop, get off their horses. They're Roy Rogers and Jonah Wilde. The neighborhood is awesomely quiet. They walk to the door, stand for a moment to reassure themselves. We're all right, Jonah. Yes, I hope Dale's out front like she's supposed to be, ready to whistle if anybody comes up. She is. Let's force this door. Roy has a small steel bar in his hand. He inserts it between the door and the jam beside the lock. He pries. The door opens. Come on, Jonah. Better shut the door, though. In case somebody comes through the alley. Yeah. You know, I used to do lots of this kind of work when I was a scout for the army and after the Indians. Mm. Indians. Indians didn't have no squeaking hinges on their doors, though. The safe. We'll look there first. It's the most likely place. Here we are. I'll see if I can work the lock on the safe. Uh-huh. It kind of makes goosebumps go up and down my spine. On the inside, that is. Well, uh, just think about that turkey you're going to send to General Kenneth Rowe. Hey, listen. Outside, at the front of the building, Dale whistles the warning signal to Roy and Jonah. As she does so, the front door is opening. And a man is entering. No, two men. Fred Pappert and Les Bruce. Roy and Jonah get back out of sight. All right, let's make this fast, Fred. It won't take long. Yeah, this won't, maybe. We still got plenty more to do before the sun comes up. You remember the combination of the safe without looking it up? Sure, sure. Let's go to work, then. Roy and Jonah crouched in the shadows, listen and watch, without moving a muscle while the two outlaws turn the knob that will unlock the safe. They could spring the outlaws now, beat them here in the dark. But Roy has a bigger purpose in view. 
The door to the safe opens. Uh, there. Uh, let's see. Yeah, here's the papers. How about the badge? Yeah, I'm looking for it. Yeah, here it is. Good. Uh, just a minute till I get this closed. Yeah. yeah. Now, let's go. Yeah. Once this is done, I'll have a big load off my mind. Yeah, we got the right place to put them anyhow. Nobody will ever blame us in case the guy is wrong. Come on, Roy. Come on. Go ahead, Jonah. Let them get on past Dale before we move. Then we'll follow and find out where they got that badge in the first place and what they're using it for. Say, friends, are you hankering for something different for breakfast? Something that'll perk up the old appetite, send you off singing? Then you want Crinkles. Crinkles, post-new rice cereal that's sugar-coated. Yes, for a breakfast treat, you can't beat rice. And candy-kissed rice is twice as nice. With crinkles heaped high and handsome in your breakfast bowl, you just add milk or cream. No sugar needed. Mmm, toasted rice in sugar and honey. Everyone who tries crinkles loves them. For snacks, too. Just grab a handful anytime you want. Like this little song says, you will have a circus eater crinkle, sugar-coated cereal crinkle, candy-kissed rice, it's twice as nice, yeah. candy-kissed rice, it's twice as nice, so you will have a circus eating crinkle, So friends, why don't you try Post's new crinkles right away quick? Are you okay? That's Bruce and Fred. They got the badge and some papers. We're trailing them, Dale. Look and see which direction they take, then ride for the sheriff's house. See if he's home yet. All right, Roy. Tell him to trail us. His authority may come in handy before this night's over. Roy and Jonah follow some distance behind the two outlaws, careful always to keep out of sight and out of sound. The moon is in the last quarter, and sometimes they have trouble keeping on the trail. But eventually, Bruce and Papert lead them to the cliff directly below High Point Ridge. Easy trigger. Quiet there, fellow. Oh, oh, oh. Hey, Roy, can you see the renegades now? Yeah, they're digging. Yeah, they come a mighty long way just to dig a hole and bury a badge. If that's what they're doing. Mm. And I wish they'd hustle. See, I wish they'd hustle. They're near quarter after one. Gulp and Glory used to call at the ranch to see me at 7.30. I know. Of course, it'll probably be all right. She was always a great one for setting. She was, eh? Yeah. Used to sit on a log with the general and look up into his face for hours. <laughs> and the general would be gazing off towards the horizon with his hand stuck in his shirt. Yeah, Roy, he was a great one for gazing off toward the sunset, the general was. Never moving for old long statue. Hey, did you see that? Yeah, I saw it, Jonah. He threw the badge and some papers into the hole. Now's the time we make our move. Roy and Jonah leap toward the two outlaws. Bruce and Capper are paralyzed with fear for a moment. Then Bruce recovers. Roy and Jonah are upon them now. Roy swings at Bruce. Jonah takes on Fred Pappert. The battle is wild, hard, vicious. Both Bruce and Pappert are fighting for their lives, for their freedom. Bruce is down. Now Roy's moved over to help Jonah. And he gets up there. Jonah swings hard. Pappert goes up into the air, then crashes down. Yeah. 
get him, Louie? Oh, did we get him? Hey, they not only bit the dust, they got a whole mouthful. Sheriff, I think your search for the missing law officer is over. He seems to have been buried here. Bruce and Pepper killed him, didn't No, no, we didn't kill anybody. Where's John Wallace? Did you kill him, too? Say, you'll have to excuse me, Roy, but I've got to get out of here. Oh, go ahead, Jonah. That's it, Sheriff. They killed him, and they moved in on his place of business. We'll tell you where Wallace went. He's in Bear City. We got his address. We didn't kill nobody, not even this lawman. An examination will tell us whether you did or not. Let's get the cuffs on and take them back to town, Roy. Sheriff, uh, maybe you'd better take them. Dale and I have a little more spying we want to do tonight. Buttermilk. Wait a minute, Roy. Well, what's the matter? Jonah, look at him. <laughs> yeah, looks like he must have lost his best friend. Jonah, is there anything wrong? Uh, oh, what's the trouble, fella? Oh, yeah, that gulping glory was here and left. Well, she'll be back when you explain what happened. Sure. Yeah. Well, I ain't explaining nothing to that woman. Just looky here. I said, looky here. You know what these things is? What? Bones. Turkey bones. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yes, Dale. She cooked the general's turkey. She cooked it and ate it herself, right down to the last pin feather. Oh, no. The... Oh, that, that, that gulping glory. Draft her for kingdom come. And back again. Dale, it looks as though the Double R Bar Ranch is going to have to make a little contribution here. I should say so. You know, we just can't leave the general without a turkey for Thanksgiving. My blue-eyed Sally, she lives way down in Shinbone Alley. The number's on the gate and the number's on the door. The next house over is the grocery store. Now, what do you mean, your blue-eyed Sally? I'll kick you in your Shinbone Alley. My number's on the gate and my number's on the door. And I don't live next to no grocery store. Stay all night, stay a little longer. Dance all night, dance a little longer. Pull off your coat, throw it in the corner. Don't see why you don't stay a little longer. Buckle up four, to your homes and everybody swings, swing your honey around the ring. Stay all night, 
that's all for now, folks. This is Roy Rogers saying to all of you from all of us, goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you. See you next week. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. The Roy Rogers Show is brought to you by Post Serials each week at this same time with the Whippoorwills, Forrest Lewis, Dale Evans, and the king of the cowboys himself, Roy Rogers. An Art Rush production transcribed. Directed by Tom Hargis. Script by Ray Wilson. Music by Milton Charles. Featured in today's cast were Frank Hemingway, Herb Butterfield, Bob Griffin, and Joe Duvall. This is Art Ballinger speaking for... P.O.S.T. Post Serials. Happy trails to you Until About the clouds, if we're together, just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. For a Christian sci fi with adventure, drama, and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker and Nira's assignment. Anira Henderson was used to dealing with every kind of trauma in her job as an emergency room tech. Then, the disaster that wiped out her family, except for her brother Jarl, landed tragedy squarely on her own lap. In the midst of her grief, she is recruited to join an elite force of universe healers. Fixing radically broken things has always been her life's dream. But, this just took it to a whole new level. Read Quantum Spacewalker, Anira's assignment by Grace S. Gross. It's 8 o'clock. Next time you serve cocktails, use G&D Vermouth. G&D. The number one selling mystery character in all fiction is on the air. The hard-hitting private eye, Mike Hammer, in the Mickey Spillane mystery, That Hammer Guy. The makers of kicks, tasty, crispy corn puffs, food for action. And the makers of mild, flavorful Camels, America's most popular cigarette. And the publishers of Esquire magazine, in cooperation with the Mutual Broadcasting System, present That Hammer Guy, a new suspense series transcribed based on Mickey Spillane's fabulous Mike Hammer. More than 20 million readers have thrilled to his exciting books. In just a moment, you'll meet in person Mickey Spillane's That Hammer Guy. Here's the shocking truth. The truth about the growing immorality in the United States. May Esquire's revealing expose, Call Girls and Fall Guys, reports that millions of Americans would end up behind prison bars if it were possible to enforce all the laws on sex. Yes, it's the truth, now told in a way you've never heard before. And it's in the current issue of Esquire. Here are the startling facts. Each year, both you and the government are cheated by those who would use immorality as an income tax deduction. And loose money is buying loose morals in a way that threatens your very way of life. 
May Esquire reveals the carefully hidden secrets of New York and Hollywood's Romeos and Juliets. Don't miss Call Girls and Fall Guys in the May issue of Esquire on your newsstand now. And now, here is Larry Haynes in the Mickey Spillane mystery, That Hammer Guy. You've been prowling the town like a happy tomcat with a night full of delicatessen garbage cans. But by the time dawn rolls around, you've got that washed-out gray feeling. So you turn in at the nearest glorified flop house and hit up the sleepy room clerk for a berth. Here's the key, room 500. Someone just checked out. You're lucky. Any special service you want? All you want is sleep. So you crawl in the sack like a bear who's finally found its winter cave. But just when you settle down to hibernate, the knocking starts. Your shirt on. Okay, okay, I'm coming. Yeah, what is it? Uh, oh. Before the world exploded into orange flashes, all you saw was a pair of old beat-up brown and white saddle shoes. The stabbing pain in your side brings you out of the whirling blackness. And you're still in the room. But on the bed now. And the unfriendly, pasty face of the desk clerk is looking down into yours. You're lucky, Hammer. It's only a flesh wound. This is luck. I'd like to know what you think misfortune is. If you're going to get yourself shot, why pick this hotel? Well, where else in town can you get a bullet through your side instead of breakfast in bed? You can't afford to be funny. Oh, well, thanks for the patch job. Does uh, a little information come with the room service? For information, you go to a booth in an apartment store. I'd like to know who plugged me. You don't mind that, do you? Your clothes are hanging over the chair. You're all checked out. I asked you a question. How should I know? You fool around with dames. Things like this can happen. This wasn't a dame. You know more than I do. Why ask me? There was a guy wearing brown and white saddle shoes. That's all I know. You tell me the rest. All I can tell you is to get out of here. Well, maybe I want to stay till the doctor comes. You don't need a doctor. All right, then the cops. Look, Hammer, you don't want any trouble with cops. They ask a lot of questions. We don't want any trouble with the cops either. We got enough trouble already. I'll bet you have. Like I said, your clothes are on the chair. We need the room. Uh-huh, for a shooting gallery. You got ten minutes to get out. Well, I'll need more. Ten minutes or a couple of guys will be up to show you. I'll show you. Be hospitable or you'll get your neck wrapped around the bedpost. You're going to answer my question. You're going to answer or you're going to go around with your head in a cast for a long time. All right, all right, all right. Don't stop. Now you saw the guy who shot me. No, I didn't. On the bright. I-, I swear. He must have passed through the lobby downstairs. You were the last person I saw in the lobby. Probably used the back stairs. You said somebody just checked out of the room before I took it. Who was it? I don't know his name. You got to register. He didn't sign in. He slipped me five bucks nah, to sign in. Let's try that again. Martin. It's just Frank Martin. Why didn't you want to tell me his name? He slipped me the money to keep my mouth shut. Okay, fill me in with the rest. What kind of a guy was this Frank Martin? Well, looked like Hayes. He checked in two days ago. Stayed in his room all the time, even... Had his meal sent up. Why'd he leave? I don't know. He came running down the stairs like the devil was after him and went out. Went out where? Didn't leave a forwarding address. Oh, you want more to say? No, wait. All right, keep talking. I helped him get a cab. I heard him tell the driver something. What? An address. The Hotel Fairfield, I think. You just think? Fairfield, I'm sure. That's better. No trouble. I told you we don't want any trouble here. Yeah, well, you better pray you told me the truth. Oh, I did. Now, will you please 
get out of here. All right. But if you didn't level with me, I'll be back. And it won't be the reputation of this joint I'll hurt. It'll be you. You'll find Frank Martin at the Fairfield, all right. But someone found him before you did. Whoever shot you by mistake got to Martin and corrected the error. The desk clerk was right. This Frank Martin must have been a hayseed. The kind of a guy you'd expect to see calling the turns at a square dance. The room's been stripped of everything except a leather picture frame on the night table. And whoever tore out the picture left the lower right-hand corner jammed into the broken glass. And on that corner, you read the scrawl, To my darling husband, from Lillian. Except for that, you're at a standoff. Yeah. Frankie. Uh, yeah. This is Ella. I found out where she is, Frankie boy. You're in for a big surprise. Who? Who? You spent two years looking for that ever-loving wife of yours. You come here all the way from Kansas, and now that I can deliver her, you sound like it don't mean a thing. Uh, where is she? Where is she? Say, what's the matter with you? Don't you remember our agreement? Oh, uh, yeah, I just was anxious. Well, don't get too anxious. A bargain's a bargain, Frankie boy. You bring the 500 bucks, and you'll get the information. Mm-hmm. Bring it where? Jefferson Park in 20 minutes, okay? Fine. I'll be under the statue of Columbus. And believe me, Frankie boy, you're going to discover a whole new world. to know the rest about Frank Martin because you've got to know how you can locate saddle shoes. On the way over to the park, you keep thinking about a mild little guy who came to the big city to find his wife and was stopped dead. When you get to the statue of Columbus, there's a dame standing under it, glancing around like a lookout for a heist job. Looking for something? If I was, you couldn't find it. That's a nice statue, but you'd make a much nicer one. Don't get fresh. I might blow the whistle. Well, there's nothing wrong with talking, is there? This isn't the time. I'm here on business. Mm-hmm. You're lucky I know what kind of business, or I might blow the whistle. Hey, who are you? Well, we made a date, Ella. Remember? Either I have a short memory, or you've got a long nose. Frankie Martin. I'm right about the nose, it's not Our business. You uh, have some information for me. I have some information, but you're not Frank Martin. You'll have to settle for me. Where's Frank? My date's with him. He's been dead over an hour. Try again. I just talked to him 20 minutes ago. You talked to me. Too bad. About Martin? About the 500. I hate to miss a payoff like that. Uh, well, you can tell me what you were going to tell him. Sure, I could. Well. Got the 500? No. I didn't think so. Yeah, but why let this relationship be cheapened by money? I never do anything for nothing. I didn't think so. Goodbye, soldier. Your leaf is over. Don't overrate yourself. I just hate to see people killed. It messes up our fair city streets. Killed? What's that supposed to mean? Frankie Martin was looking for his wife, Lillian, wasn't he? So? So somebody didn't want him to find her, so he got killed. So he got killed. What's that got to do with me? You know where his wife is, don't you? All right, I do. Why should you want to know? You're no cop, are you? No, I'm no cop. But I'm curious about Lillian Martin and a guy who wears a pair of beat-up saddle shoes. I stopped one of saddle shoes slugs for Frank Martin before the mistake was corrected. Saddle shoes, huh? Maybe I could locate them for you. Cash on the line, of course. Hmm. What a wonderful friend you'd make. The only friend I have looks at me in the mirror every morning when I brush my teeth. I bet you like to think that people write books about you. I learned early in life that you get by only on a strict cast-and-carry basis. And I didn't read it in a book. 
Am I telling me how well you know Lillian Martin? Well enough to feel sorry for her husband. Now go home and lick your wounds. You look like the kind of a guy with a past that can absorb this experience. That wound of mine isn't going to get healed till I find saddle shoes and Lillian Martin. Save your strength. Even in my society, her kind is marked no good. You can easily lose your life membership in your society. You said that before. You know where she is. It'll be just as easy to kill you as it was to kill Martin. I can take care of myself. Yeah, that's what they all say before the gun goes off. Now, if you'll tell you me... You still haven't got the 500. See you around. You should live so long. You watch her walk down the park path, swinging her hips like a basketball player taking a pivot shot. In a moment, she's free of the bushes and out in the open. You grind out your cigarette and start to follow. Only you don't get far. And Della, well, she makes even less progress. In just a moment, we'll return to That Hammer Guy. Here's a sad little song by a person who starts the day without breakfast. It's a shame to be a Nixie like me. I suffer from a lack of energy. Won't somebody tell me why I fail in everything I try? It's a shame to be a Nixie like me. People slow to catch on. Hard to get started are Nixies, unlike quick-witted, fast-footed Kixies. Kixies are men of action who eat kicks, food for action, peppy boys and girls, grown-ups, too, who build breakfast around a heaping bowl of kicks, have lots of energy every morning, because kicks is an 83% energy food. Start your day with kicks corn puffs, tender, tasty, crisp. Eat kicks. Food for action. Oh, it's grand to be a Kixie like me. Always feeling full of pep and energy. Every morning I eat kicks, so I'm never in a fix. Oh, it's grand to be a Kixie like me. And now, back to the Mickey Spillane mystery. That hammer guy. can't see where the shots come from, but you know by the crazy pirouette Ella makes as she goes down that she isn't getting up anymore. And when she goes down, your hopes of locating either Lily and shoes sink with her. She was dealing for $500, but all she has in her pocketbook is $2.40 and several matchbooks advertising the friendship bar. After you call Pat Chambers at Homicide, you go to that bar. Look all wound up, mister. Why don't you relax? You've been buying drinks around, but nobody knows a thing. You take a look at the dame who's wrapped around the bar stool next to you. And you know a few more drinks, and she won't even recognize her own name. Sophisticated lady. Isn't that a pretty song? It's a song. Special for me. Never get tired of listening. I hear you've been asking around about Lillian. Wouldn't you like to buy me a drink? Sure, why not? What are you drinking? Almost anything. Name it. Bourbon will be fine. Same as you. Another one of these, bartender. Such a pretty song. What about Lillian? Sophisticated lady. It's my special favorite piece. Oh, uh, your drink. Thanks. Well, that's you here, huh? To you, mister. You want to know about Lillian Martin? 
That's right. Forget her, mister. She's no good. She'll ruin you. Look, I want information, not advice. How well do you know her? Lillian, too well. Look at me. Pretty. Oh, I can no. be pretty again, too, anytime I want. All I have to do is stop drinking this stuff. So why don't you stop? Because <laughs> I can't. <laughs> you ask a silly question, you get a silly answer. Silly, isn't it? What was she to you? Lillian? Everything, nothing. What's that supposed to mean? Two kinds of people in this world. One with a long story and the ones with a short story. You don't want to hear the story of my life, do you? I've got nothing but time. I'm the short story type. Lillian was my friend. I gave her a place to sleep, helped her get a job, let her wear my clothes. Even introduced her to, as they say in the storybooks, the man I loved. And? And she took him away from me. You want to find her? I want to find her. Me too. Ruined me. Ruined my boyfriend. Ruined the only guy I ever loved. You ever hear such a sad short story? My name's Vera Condon. Call me Vera if you like. What about your ex-boyfriend? Is he around? Dave? Hmm? Haven't seen him since she took him away. No. Well, maybe he'll come floating back. Dave? I'll slam the door right in his face. No, I won't. But what's the difference? What I do? He's not coming back. Look, uh, Vera, here's my card. If he does show, give me a ring, huh? If you happen to find out where he is, let me know. You're a nice guy. We should have met before. Things would have been different. Yeah. Things always would have been different. The days roll by as slow as glue coming out of a bottle. And with every itching ache of a healing wound in your side, you know you're going to find Lillian Martin in saddle shoes if it's the last thing you do. You try everything, look everywhere, but nothing happens. And just when you're ready to face the fact you're in a downfall with no hope for a breeze, the phone rings. Mike, this is Vera Condon. Come over to room 417, the Royalty Apartments. The door will be open. If the apartments are royalty, you know they've been in exile too long. Vera's room is filthy with empty bottles and smells like old home week at a Kentucky mountain still. And she's sprawled over the bed, kicking her feet against the backboard in time to the phonograph record. Ever hear such a pretty song, Mike? Sophisticated lady. What do you want to see me about, Vera? I remember when guys didn't have to have a reason to see me. Now, you know what my reason is. Yeah. Lillian. Always her. What's the matter with me? Nothing, but... You can't kid me, I know. Oh, no more sophisticated lady. You know something. That's why you asked me over. You know something about Lillian Martin. She disappeared over a year ago with Dave. I still don't know where she is. Maybe Dave does. You uh, told me you didn't know where he is. Well, you know how girls are. They always change their mind. So? Well, there ought to be something in it for me besides a drink at a bar, don't you think? What do you want, Vera? Something I lost a long time ago. My self-respect. I can't help you with that. Too late, huh? Mike, you don't have to be honest all the time. Vera, I can't help you lie to yourself. You can't break every mirror in the world. Nobody can help me anymore. Nobody but you. You're a nice guy. I like you, Mike. I'm a guy looking for somebody. If I tell you where he is, will you come back and see me? Sure. Even if you find Lillian? Sure. His name's Dave Williams. Where will I find him? Where you find everybody who's been nice to Lillian. At the bottom of the ladder. In the mud. And where's the mud he's in? A place called the Gotham Club down on the 4th Street. But don't let the name fool you. It's a flea bag of a flop house. Thanks. 
Here, uh, maybe you can use this. Twenty dollars. You're a nice guy, Mike. You don't have to tell me what it's for. So you don't have to bother with someone like me anymore. I'm paid off. I told you I'll come back. I mean it. I can straighten out, Mike. Honest. Sure you can. If the bottle you buy has perfume in it. Sure. Perfume. That's a good idea. When you see me again, I'll be like I was before. Sparkling, just like those rhinestones. I can really straighten out. You leave Vera all hope. But you know her hope is as empty as the stock exchange on Sunday morning. You know just what kind of a bottle she's going to buy. When you find Dave Williams in that flop house, you begin to understand what she means about Lillian. It's an old story, friend. She made me what I am today. You don't know what Dave Williams was like a year ago, but today he isn't winning any prizes as a lady killer. It's crazy for a guy to believe in a dame. You always find out too late. Isn't what Vera told me. Vera? Yeah, I understand it's even too late for her. I'm only interested in Lillian right now. Forget her. I can try, but her husband won't let me. Husband? So she had one of those, too? Yeah. And he got paid off worse than you did. Somebody killed him because he wanted to find her. Always a smart operator, that Lillian. Nobody who uses a gun instead of his brains is smart. I wonder. What? Who's better off, her husband or me? I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I could use a benefit. Look, just tell me where I can get hold of Lillian and I'll leave you. Get hold of her? <laughs> you got a shovel handy? What do you mean? Lillian's dead. She's been buried in Fairmont Cemetery for over six months. In just a moment, we'll return to That Hammer Guy. And now, back to the Mickey Spillane mystery, That Hammer Guy. When Dave Williams tells you that Lillian Martin is dead, the news hits you like a pile driver. But right after that shock, you get the biggest crusher of them all. Just as you get up to leave, you look down at the foot of his bed... And there, peeping out at you like obscene eyes, is a pair of old, beat-up brown and white saddle shoes. You want to turn back and listen to a few of Dave's bones crack, but you hold yourself in and get out. You're waiting outside in your car when he comes out and gets into a cab. You tail him to a Tony apartment building on Park Avenue. You watch him go in, call on the house phone, and then take off. The doorman tells you his call was to the penthouse occupied by a Mr. and Mrs. Stephen Kane. Kane himself greets you at the penthouse door, shows you into the library, and answers your questions with the calm of an efficient surgeon. I'm sorry, Mr. Hammer, but I never heard of this Lillian Martin. I didn't think you did. This, uh, this isn't her kind of world. I suppose we ourselves create our own kind of world. Yeah, well, sometimes you get helped along, whether you like it or not. I happen to believe that we are the masters of our own destinies. Well, maybe you're right, but it's nice to think you've got someone to blame. Just, what do you mean by that? I mean the guy who called up here a few minutes ago. Nobody called here. This phone is used for my business only. Well, for him, the call might have been for pleasure. The call may have come in on the house phone. It did. You could be entirely mistaken, Mr. Hammer. Is your wife around? I don't know. What does she do, fly in and out the window? 
She's anything but a witch, Mr. Hammer. I didn't mean it that way. I'm sure you didn't. You're perhaps referring to her coming and going without my knowledge. Yeah, that's right, I am. She has a private entrance to her portion of the apartment. Society life is rather boring, unless you have an outside interest such as charity work. I'm afraid Helen has thrown herself completely into her hobby. Hmm. I never met a husband who doesn't know where his wife is. I don't have to know. I trust my wife implicitly. Yeah, well, like you said, people create. But I'd still like to know about that phone call. Then why don't you ask my wife? Well, I thought you said you didn't know whether or not she was here. I was only talking in theory. I like people to know how well mated we are. Saves embarrassing talk about the difference in our ages. Mm-hmm. Would you mind calling her in? She's resting in her sitting room. You may go in, if you like. You go into the sitting room, and the first feeling you get is the fluffiness of the ruffles and the smoothness of the satin. But Mrs. Helen Kane, for better or worse, is conspicuous by her absence. Then you spot a photograph on an end table. It's a shot of a beautiful, blonde, slow-eyed dish, practically smiling the words of the autograph in the lower right-hand corner. To my darling husband, from Helen... And it's written in the same scrawl that's spelled out to my darling husband from Lillian. Oh, Mike. I came back like I promised her. Thanks. Same song, same pretty song, sophisticated lady. My song. I saw Dave Williams, Vera. Did he ask for me? No, he talked mostly about Lillian. Oh. He said she was dead. I can't say I'm sorry. But she isn't. Huh? Dead. I found her. You did? What did she say? She said, you did? What did she say? You're laughing at me, Mike. You got nothing to laugh at, Lillian. I'm not that drunk. You got the names mixed up. Mine's Vera. Sure. Vera and a lot of other things, too, including Mrs. Helen Kane. Now who's drinking too much? Look, I saw your photo in your sitting room with your autograph. Oh? Oh. I've heard of dames making themselves up, but never down, like you. And you didn't believe Dave about my death six months ago. I almost did, until I saw his saddle shoes under the bed. Is that a mistake? The worst kind. I was shot by a guy wearing saddle shoes. Oh? Oh. Pity I didn't have a chance to spend that $20 you gave me. Would have been for perfume. No perfume could kill the stink of death around you. Well, I had to do something about Frank. My new husband would have been horrified if he found out I was a bigamist. From Hayseed to Park Avenue, worked your way up the ladder, didn't you? Girl's got a right to live. So did Frank Martin. So that dame who was killed in Park Avenue. All she wanted was 500 bucks. She wanted much more from me. What does Dave Williams want from you? All the money he can get. But I don't mind giving it to him. Nice guy, Dave. I'm satisfied. Sure, as long as your husband doesn't find out. He's old, and he doesn't ask questions. He's glad to have me around. On my turn. He's not going to have you around anymore, Vera, or Lillian, or Helen. By the way, which is it, really? Pick anyone, Mike. Any name you call me is all right. Now, you wouldn't like the name I've got picked out for you. Mike. You're thinking of a price. Everybody's got one. Well, this is one time I haven't. You should have believed Dave. Doesn't make any difference now. Doesn't it? Oh. Why did you wait till now to get out that gun? I thought it wouldn't be necessary. Yeah, but it is, huh? Very. You'll never use it. You think I came here alone? I think you're bluffing. Wait and see. Sorry, I can't. 
You try a bluff and it doesn't work, but something else does. Right on top of the shot, Vera's body jerks like a monkey on a string. And then the string breaks. You swing around and standing behind you in the doorway is Stephen Kane. The only motion is the smoke swirling up from the nose of the gun in his hand. You know how he got here. He followed you. She had it on her terms long enough. Now it's on mine. You switch your eyes from him to the twisted body on the floor. The sophisticated lady. The fight against cancer commands our deepest concern. This disease can strike anyone, and it will strike one in five of us. However, it is a heartening fact that progress is being made against cancer. The gains made through the research, education, and service programs must continue, but need our united support. Because of the serious nature of the problem, and the way each of us may be personally affected, it is important that your response equals the urgency of the challenge. Since cancer can strike anyone, everyone should take proper protective measures. Have regular physical examinations and learn the seven danger signals. For free literature on these seven danger signals, contact your local unit of the American Cancer Society. Education alone could save 70,000 lives annually, which are lost only because treatment is begun too late. Don't fail to do your share in fighting mankind's most dread disease. Cancer strikes one in five. Strike back. Next week, at the same time, listen to another suspenseful adventure with America's number one selling mystery character, Mickey Spillane's exciting Bat Hammer Guy. Larry Haynes is Mike Hammer, with Jan Miner as Vera. This program is presented transcribed by the makers of mild, flavorful camels, America's most popular cigarette. The publishers of Esquire magazine and the makers of Kicks, tasty, crispy corn puffs, food for action, in cooperation with the Mutual Network. All names and places in this story were fictitious, and any similarity to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. The Mickey Spillane mystery, That Hammer Guy, is a Moss and Lewis production, written by Ed Adamson and directed by Richard Lewis. Ed Ladd speaking. Looking for a book that combines the Christian faith with a fantasy adventure? Creator's Call does just that. 18-year-old Edward has been raised with tales of distant lands where dragons and other strange beasts dwell. He dreams of one day joining the Keepers, who fight against them to keep the land safe, however, life's obstacles keep him firmly rooted in the small town of Cadestone. When 17-year-old June comes passing through, following a dream given to her by the creator of the universe, Edward's life is about to change. Pursued by a demon-possessed man, the two of them are forced to flee to areas where dragons and monsters are not just tales but reality. June and Edward eventually discover what the demons want from them. Is it possible to defeat this evil and save everyone from the darkness that threatens their lands? Creator's Call is a Christian fantasy novel with clear Christian messages. A book that glorifies God while taking you on an adventure. Pick up a copy of Creator's Call today. Random House Audiobooks presents Mist, the Book of Atrus by Rand and Robin Miller with David Wingrove. A full cast production with music and sound effects. 
missed. Gen's boot prints lay heavy around the tiny pool, the well-tended green churned to mud. At one end of the garden, he had dug a shallow grave. Now, as dawn broke over the cleft wall 20 feet above, he covered over the young girl's body. From the steps above, Anna watched, exhausted after the long night. She had done what she could, but the girl had clearly been ill long before childbirth claimed her. Still, Anna knew Gen would blame her. So it had always been. He looked up at her, no love in that cold, penetrating gaze. Just nineteen he was. Will you stay? No. Anna shook her head. He had come in desperation, remembering his mother's healing powers. But he had come too late. Anna ducked into the small inner chamber. She stared down at the baby's pale blue eyes, then picked it up, cradling it. You poor thing. You poor, poor thing. She went out and watched Gan wash in the pool, sullying its precious liquid. Gan had always been thoughtless. Do you want me to dress the child for the journey? Bury it with its mother if you must, but don't bother me with it. You saved it. You look after it. This is your son, Gen. You gave him life. You are responsible for him. That is the way of things in this world. Gen climbed the steps, his glasses perched on his head. Anna stared at him. His wild look made her fear for his sanity after all that had happened. He brushed past her onto the rope bridge. But you didn't name him. You didn't even name him. Lying within the great volcano's shadow, the cleft might have been a natural feature, but for the low stone wall that surrounded it. Now Anna watched her son climb over the cleft wall into the dawn light, the mist swirling about him. For a moment, he stood looking back at the cleft. Then, stepping out into nothingness, he vanished. Seven years passed, and the boy grew. Now he lay on the cleft wall, staring out across the sand. His heavy lenses were adjusted for long sight. His sensitive eyes focused on the caravan. For weeks he had been dreaming of the traders, imagining himself leaving with them, off into the greater world. Of those dreams, he told his grandmother nothing, for she worried they might come and take him to sell into slavery. So he hid when she said to hide, and held his tongue about the dreams. He watched, taking it all in, knowing his grandmother would ask him later. What did you see, Atrus? I saw... He saw one of them holding a small sack. The sack seemed to move, and then settle. Atrus adjusted his glasses, certain he had imagined it. Then he saw his grandmother place the sack on the pile of things she'd bartered for. He watched her hand over the things she'd grown or made to trade, the precious herbs and minerals, the intricately carved stone figures, the strange, colorful paintings, and wondered at her inventiveness. Seven years he had lived with her in this dry and desolate place, and never once had she let him go hungry. He watched as the caravan moved on. Atrus, what did you see? I saw great cities in the south, Grandmother, and men, so many men. At the lip of the cleft, she stopped. Here, take the salt and flour down to the storeroom. 
Atrus climbed down into the cool shadow of the cleft, where every inch was cultivated. The walls were a patchwork of adobe structures and greenery. A rope bridge linked the various structures not joined by rock steps. The storeroom was at the far end, near the bottom. Here, water bubbled up from a spring. This was the place where his mother was buried. At one end lay a patch of delicate blue flowers, their petals like tiny stars, their stamen velvet dark. Atrus went on down to the storeroom door. It was decorated with intricate carvings. This was his grandmother's doing, for if there was a clear surface anywhere, she would want to decorate it, as if all creation was her canvas. Atrus slid the sack onto the shelf. Then he padded up the steps and saw that Anna was waiting for him. He could see how tired she was. Crossing to the pool, he took the ladle and dipped it into the still, mirror-like surface. Then, careful not to spill a drop of precious water, he climbed to where Anna sat. Thank you. Well, Atrus, what did you see? I saw a brown cloth sack, and the sack moved. <laughs> her laughter was unexpected. Then she produced the sack from within her cloak. Well, are you going to take it? For me? What is it? Look and see. But be careful, it might bite. <laughs> I'm only teasing. Open it. He peered into it. There was something there. Something small and hunched and... A kitten. You bought me a kitten. Happy seventh birthday, Atrus. It was beautiful, sand-colored, with green eyes. Look at her. She's like a tiny flame. Then maybe you should call her that. Flame? Mm-hmm. Flame could use some water now, Atrus. All right. Come on, Flame. Let's get you a drink. It had been a wonderful day, yet Atrus had recently begun to feel there had to be more than this. There were so many things to know, to learn. And when I've learned them, Grandmother? <laughs> There's never an end to learning, Atrus. There are more things in this universe, yes, and more universes than we could ever hope to know. He hadn't understood, but the vastness of the night sky gave him some inkling. Still, he was curious to know all he could. Atrus? You have a lot to write in your journal tonight. I wrote in it earlier, Grandmother. Ah, and how goes your experiment? I saw you out there earlier. For nearly six months now, Atrus had been studying the movement of dunes. He had measured them daily, using stakes. Another few weeks and I'll have my results. Anna was proud of the care he took. Atrus had a fine mind, a true explorer's mind, and a curiosity to match. And have you a theory? They move. When there's a storm, the wind pushes the grains up the windward side, and they tumble over the crest. That's why the dune is shaped the way it is. Do you know why they tumble? It has to do with how the grains balance on each other. Up to a certain angle they're fine, but beyond that... And have you measured that angle? Thirty-five degrees. 
Good Atrus, you've tried to see the whole. The whole? You've looked at the problem from many angles and considered how the pieces fit. And now you understand it. It's a small thing, Atrus. After all, a dune is but a dune. But the principles sound, however complex the system is. Always consider the whole, Atrus. Always look at the interrelatedness of things. And remember, the whole of one thing is always just a part of something larger. Atrus nodded, his seriousness belying his seven years. You want Flame to sleep with you? Yes. I'll come tell you a story if you like. Please. And Nana, thank you for Flame. She's beautiful. I'll take good care of her. I know you will. Looking at her grandson as he lay in bed, Anna felt a twinge of regret for the passing of innocence, knowing such moments could not last. Nothing lasted. Neither individual lives, nor empires. Nana, tell me the tale of Kareth. But you've heard that several times now, Atris. I'd like to hear it again. Please, Grandmother. All right, then. Thousands of years ago, in Dunny, which was once our homeland, there was a great king named Kareth. He was the last of the great kings. After him, a council of elders ran things. Now, when Kareth was 16, he set off on a journey to the great underground desert of Tremurkti the place of poisoned waters, where he did battle with a giant. How he clings to every word. Does he imagine himself a young prince like Kareth? Or is it something else in the tale that attracts him? For there is no doubt this is his favorite story. And so, Kareth tamed the great lizard and rode it back into Dunny, and everyone cheered at his triumph. Are there many tales, Grandmother? Oh, <laughs> thousands. And do you know them all? Why, that would be impossible, Atrus. Memorizing all the tales of the great Dunny Empire would take several lifetimes, and even then I would have learned but a few. And are the tales true? Do you believe them? I guess so. Yet she sensed that he was not satisfied. Good night, then. Three years went by. Caravans came and went, and once it had even rained. To Atrus, who had never seen rain, that was a miracle. The pool covered the whole floor of the cleft, reflecting the stars in its shimmering surface. Flowers bloomed on the desert sands, only to die a day later. And Atrus had found a place where minerals from the volcano's vents made the flowers grow better. Ever the scientist, he used the minerals to fertilize his own crop. Now, three months later, it was time for him to harvest. He picked some of the bigger shoots and carried them up to the kitchen. As flame stretched and settled among the remaining shoots, Atrus tasted one. Mmm, good. Ew! Atrus, what is it? Nothing. Well, 
I'll cook up some rice to eat with the shoots. Atrus picked up the bowl and took it to the sink again. Maybe he hadn't washed them thoroughly enough. The last thing he wanted was for them to taste bad. An hour later, the pain started. It was like being stabbed. His vision glazed. Then he began to throw up. Atrus, the shoots. It must have been the shoots. Did you eat some? I did. Just one. What did you use? Use? I didn't... Wait. The minerals from the volcano. Oh, Nana, I could have killed us both. It's all right, Atrus. You'll learn from this. I nearly... Oh, no. Flame. Anna stepped past him, then crouched beside Flame, pressing her ear against the kitten's side. Then she straightened up. I'm sorry. I... Atrus knelt beside her, looking down at the tiny animal. Then he picked it up, and cuddling it, took it to the patch of blue flowers. Anna saw how dignified he was at that moment, how grown up, how he kept in all he was feeling. And she knew he had shed some of his childishness and taken a farther step out into the adult world. Out. Away from her. Atra stared across the steaming caldera, his glasses pulled down over his face. Fourteen years old now, he was almost a man's height, but he had yet to fill out. For weeks he had been setting up his experiment. Here in the caldera, he had rigged his pride and joy, his battery. He believed it could run on the steam from the deep vents. If it worked, they would have all the power they needed and would no longer need to buy oil from the caravans for their lamps. Going over to the battery, Atrus examined it. The dial showed that it was fully charged. He knew now that the principle was sound. Atrus raised his head, looking directly ahead of him. A cloud of steam obscured his view. Then, as it cleared, he found himself staring into blackness. It was a cave, or a tunnel of some kind. Strange. It seemed almost as though it had been carved from the surrounding rock. Atrus! Anna stood high above him, silhouetted against the crater's lip. Come up! Come up here right now! But my battery! Now! Walking back, she suddenly turned to face him. Atrus. What did you see? I saw... Atrus, answer me. What did you see? My battery. My battery was charged. And that was all? There was lots of steam. My battery. I've got to get my battery. Forget the battery. It's too dangerous. Now, come. Let's clean you up. The moon was barely up when making sure not to wake his grandmother, Atrus crept out. Taking a rope and a sack from the storeroom, he ventured out onto the volcano's slope. He climbed over the rim, moving down into the darkness, until he found his battery. For a moment, he crouched over it, but his eyes were drawn to the tunnel's mouth. Compelled, he walked across. Taking the tinderbox from his inner pocket, he pressed the catch and stepped inside. In the glowing light from his tinderbox, he could see how the tunnel stretched into the darkness, 
sloping gradually, like a giant wormhole cut into the rock. He walked on, eager to see where it led. The smell of sulfur was far less strong than it had been. Other, stranger smells filled the air, musty, unfamiliar smells. Atrus turned and went over to the wall, placing his palm against it. It was cool, smooth, and dry. He was about to move away when some irregularity farther down the wall drew his attention. He walked over to it, and he stopped. A huge symbol had been cut into the wall. There was no mistaking it. It's a dunny word. Atrus stared at it, not recognizing it, but committing it to memory. Until now, he had only half-believed the things his grandmother had told him. The tales were so strange, so fantastic, that he found it hard to believe that such things had ever really happened. Atrus turned back toward the entrance, and he slipped on something. It rolled away from him, beginning to glow, softly at first, then brightly, its warm red light filling the tunnel. Atrus put his hand out tentatively to see if it was hot. Satisfied it was safe, he picked it up, holding it between his thumb and forefinger to study it. It was a glowing rock, a marble of some kind. He had never seen its like. He slipped it into his pocket, then hurried out, meaning to raise the battery before Anna woke and wondered where he was. It took almost an hour for him to drag the battery back up to the rim. Anna came and helped him the last thirty feet or so. In silence, they carried it down the slope to the cleft. Atrus waited for her to chastise him, but she was silent. I wanted to put things right. Drink, then. I'll make you breakfast. I think it's time I told you a story. And so... When Viavis returned, the fate of Dunny was sealed. Within a day, the work of millennia was undone, and the great caverns of the Dunny emptied of life. All because of Tiana's misjudgment. So you blame Tiana? But she couldn't have known. Besides, she did what she thought best. Best for her conscience, maybe. But was it best for Dunny? There were others who wanted Viavis put to death after the first revolt. If they had been listened to, if only Tiana had not spoken so eloquently to the Great Council. Well, all that is in the past. The Dunny are no more. Only the tales remain. He held out the glowing marble to her. I found it on the floor of the volcano. Where did you find it? Near the battery. In the tunnel? Yes. Anna took the fire marble from his hand. Holding it up, she dropped it suddenly into the bowl of water at her side. Instantly, it was extinguished. You must not go there again, Atrus. It's very dangerous. But, Grandmother... You're not ready yet. Promise me, Atrus, please... I promise, Grandmother. Good. Each afternoon, they would sit beside the pool and talk. Today, Atrus was copying a dunny word Anna had drawn. Grandmother, you say there's no English equivalent to this word, 
But why? Surely they had the same things as we do. Words aren't just words, Atrus. Words are... Well... At the simplest level, a word can be a label. Tree, sand, rock. To know what kind of tree, we need further labels. A large tree, a palm tree. At another level, words can represent ideas. Love, intelligence, loyalty. These aren't quite so simple. We can't simply add an extra word to clarify what we mean. To get to the real meaning of such concepts, we need to define them in several ways. Intelligence, for instance, might be the instinctive intelligence of an ant, or the deeper, more emotional intelligence of a human. So there's an even more complex level, one on which this Dunny word functions. Exactly. But what could be more complex than ideas? That's why there's no English equivalent for many Dunny words. Just accept that there is something beyond labels and ideas. A synthesis of the two. Something that Dunny discovered many years ago. One day you will understand more clearly. Part of her wanted to tell him, but he wasn't ready yet. Just as one day he would outgrow the cleft and venture out into the world, so his thoughts were certain to outgrow her careful nurturing of them. Looking at him, she knew he was destined to be greater than herself. A month went by, and as the moon came round to full once more, Atrus made his way idly up the slope, humming a dunny song. Suddenly he looked up and stopped dead. Ahead of him, the mist slowly roiled, turning in upon itself. As Atrus drew back, afraid, a man stepped from within the whiteness. A tall, unearthly figure, wearing glasses identical to Atrus's own. A white cloak gave him the appearance of some mythical king. Well, boy, have you no greeting for your father? My... What's your name? Atrus. Atrus, of course. And I am Gen, son of Atrus. Gen? Good. Now go inform your grandmother that she has a visitor. Grandmother! Grandmother, a stranger's come. He sent me on ahead. Gen? Grandmother? She clambered onto the cleft wall, even as the stranger arrived. Gen! Where have you been, my son? Why in the Maker's name did you not come back? She hugged her son but Atrus noticed how her embrace was not returned. I came to see my son. Atrus lay sprawled on the cleft wall, staring through the kitchen window. Gan had removed his cloak. Beneath it, he wore a marvelous suit of midnight blue, decorated with multicolored symbols. Atrus could barely keep his eyes from it, or from the pipe Gan kept with him constantly. Gan lit it with fire marbles, just like the one he'd found. Will you be staying long? No. I have to leave tomorrow. Oh. I thought you might stay with Atrus a while. Get to know him. He's a good boy. You'd be proud of him. And after all... I intend to take him with me. Atrus felt his pulse quicken. 
his mouth grow dry. But Atrus belongs here. Here? This hole in the ground is no place for a son of mine. But he's not ready yet. There's so much he has to learn. He is exactly the age I was when I first left here. And as for his education, I will teach him. You? Who better? I am educated to the task, and I am his father. You did tell him about me. She looked away. You mean you told him nothing? Karath, damn you, woman! How could you? And what was I to say? That his father left the very hour he was born? That he didn't even care enough to name him? I would have called him Atrus. You know that. Yes, but you didn't. I did. I raised him, and now you want him back as though he were a parcel you'd left with me for safekeeping. But boys aren't parcels, Gen. They're living, growing things, and Atrus hasn't finished his growing. I shall decide that. Besides, he can help me with my studies, be my assistant in my research. I have need of a willing helper. Research into what? Into the Dunny culture. The Dunny? All that has gone. Don't you understand that yet? No. You are wrong. That is where I have been these past fourteen years, in Dunny, seeking out the great secrets of our culture. It is all still there. Atrus felt a shiver go down his spine, a tiny ripple of disbelief. No. You forget. I've seen it with these eyes again. It's gone, destroyed. Can't you accept that? Can't you forget the past? Oh, I can easily believe that you would like to forget it. But I want my son to know about his past, to be proud of it the way I am. I shall not betray him the way you betrayed me. Gen, how can you say that? I did my best for you. Your best? What, this hole in the ground you call a home? Atrus should decide. You can't just take him. Of course I can. I am the boy's father. It is my right. Then let me come with you. Let me look after the boy while you are teaching him. No. It would not be the Dunny way. Or do you forget that also? Do you forget how you gave me up to the guild when I was but four years old? But... But nothing! He is coming with me, and that is that. But, Gen... She reached out to touch his arm, but he pulled away. Picking up his pipe, he stepped out into the open air. Atrus... Go to bed now and get some sleep. We shall be leaving early in the morning. Crouching beside his mother's grave, Atrus leaned across and plucked one of the delicate blue flowers. Placing it in his journal, he closed the book gently, then slipped it into his knapsack. Goodbye. Atrus did not know how to feel. The prospect of seeing Dunny thrilled him, yet the thought of leaving here, of leaving Anna, frightened him. Atrus, come now. We must go. He ran across to Anna and embraced her tightly. He felt a kind of panic, a fear of not seeing her again, well up in him. She must have sensed it, for squeezing him tightly, she then moved back, away from him, holding his upper arms and smiling at him. Don't worry, Atrus. I'll be all right. The store's full, and with all those improvements you've made, I'll not know what to do half the time. 
Besides, your father has promised he'll bring you back in three months to visit. Three months? Yes, so you must not worry. Now, listen to me, Atris. Yes, Grandmother? You must remember what you have learned here. I have tried to teach you the ways of science and the workings of nature. I have tried to teach you what is good and to be valued, truths which cannot be shaken or changed. This knowledge is from the Maker. Take it with you and weigh everything your father teaches you against it. If you act for self-gain, then no good can come of it. If you act selflessly, then you act well for all, and you must not be afraid. The journey down will be long and hard, but be brave, Atris. More than that, be truthful. Be a better son to your father than fate allowed him to be with his. I don't understand. Do what your father asks. But most of all, Atris, do not violate what is in your nature. You understand me? I think so, Grandmother. Then I have no fears for you. He embraced her again. Then, turning, he crossed the rope bridge and followed his father up the slope of the volcano. At its rim, he turned, looking back at her, his eyes briefly taking in the familiar sights of the cleft, its shape like a scar in his memory. Anna had climbed the steps and now stood on the cleft wall. Lifting an arm, she waved. Atrus waved back, then heaving a deep sigh, turned away and followed his father. They were in the tunnel. Is this tunnel done, Father? No, Atrus. This is simply a lava tube. Thousands of years ago, when the volcano was still active, hot lava ran through this channel, carving a passage to the surface. Atrus felt a surge of disappointment. The walls of the tunnel had been so smooth, its shape so perfectly round, he had been sure it must have been the product of Dunny construction. You will see things before our journey's done that will make you forget this tiny wormhole. Now, come, Atrus. The journey is long, and I have important experiments in progress. I must be back in time to see how they have developed. There will be time to talk when we reach the first of the Edratoman. Edratoman? Way stations prepared for dunny travelers. In the days of the late Empire, there were plans to have commerce with the world of men. Such plans, fortunately, did not come to pass. Yet the paths were forged through the earth and rest houses prepared for those dunny who would venture out. Gan had taken out a notebook and was studying it. Atrus glimpsed a diagram of paths and tunnels. With a grunt, Gen closed the book, then marched on. It was several hours hard walking through a labyrinth of twisting tunnels before they finally came to the Edra Toman. The Dunny way station was built into a recess of a large cave. Why are we stopping, Father? Because the hour is late and because I am tired. But I thought... Gen gestured toward a knapsack that rested on a nearby bunk. That is yours. You can change now or later, but I would not sleep in the boots if I were you. I don't know if they fit. Atrus tipped the bag up, spilling its contents onto the mattress. Oh, 
Beside the knee-length boots, there was a cloak like his father's and a small leather pouch. Atrus poured a number of tiny objects from it into his palm. Fire marbles, a whole pouch of them. He turned to his father, but Gen was asleep on one of the bunks that lined the walls. Atrus spread the cover over his father, then picked up the pipe from where it had fallen. It had a strange, sweet scent. Atrus placed the pipe beside Gen's bunk, then went to his own and stretched out. He was asleep in an instant. He woke to find Gen shaking him. Come on, lad. We have a long journey ahead of us. Get changed and we shall be off. Atrus sat up slowly, wondering where he was, surprised not to find himself in his own room, his mattress beneath him, the smell of his grandmother's cooking in the air. Knuckling his eyes, he put his feet round onto the floor, struck at once by how cold it was, how damp the air. Feeling sluggish, Atrus stood, beginning to dress. The texture and smell of the new clothes, their smooth softness after the roughness of his own garments, making him feel strange. Pulling on his boots, Atrus felt transformed, as if the change went deeper than the surface. The thought of it thrilled him. Will we reach Dunny today, Father? No, not today. Gen threw Atrus's old clothes to the floor. You will not need those rags, Atrus. You are Dunny now. Well, boy, what are you waiting for? Atrus looked up, stung by the sharpness in Gen's voice. Then he bowed his head obediently and followed his father out. In the hours that followed, Atrus saw a dozen splendid caverns. At the same time, however, his boots began to chafe him badly. When finally they stopped, the first thing he did was remove them. Gen came and knelt beside him. Show me. Hmm. I have some ointment in my pack. Atrus applied the cream and bandaged his feet, then pulled on his boots again. Good. Let us proceed. The path into Dunny begins just ahead of us. The words raised Atrus's spirits, making him forget his injuries. Dunny. We're going to Dunny. They had been traveling for days. Gen now walked with the notebook open in one hand, consulting it almost constantly. Then suddenly, the quality of the light changed. There was a faint breeze. As they turned the next corner, there was a definite orange glow and soon they came to the most astonishing sight Atrus had ever seen. Facing him was an enormous valley, its shores descending to a shimmering iridescent orange lake. At the center of that lake was a huge island with twisted columns of rock soaring more than a mile into the air. Buildings clung to the precipice, seeming to defy gravity. He was inside. He was in Dunny. Gen led him down to the shore, where a small boat lay moored. Now you understand why I could not leave you in that ridiculous crack in the ground. Is this not the grandest sight you have ever seen, Atrus? It was, but suddenly he wished Anna were there so he could share it with her. Come into the boat. Another hour and we're home. They were not going to the city. Not yet, anyway. Home, it seemed, was on one of the islands that skirted the wall of the cavern. 
Atrus's body ached. The gentle movement of the boat lulled him. He felt like he had walked a thousand miles. Home. Dimly, he saw the great mansion that sat upon the summit of the small island. Yet even as he saw it, he slumped onto the deck asleep. Atrus, are you awake? Where are we? We are on the island of Kvir. This will be your room, Atrus. The balcony has a view of the city. Atrus nodded. Then, with a shock, realized that his feet no longer hurt. Nor were they bandaged. My feet? I treated them while you were asleep. And your experiments? Were we in time? Gen turned away, as if he hadn't heard. Then drew back the curtains to reveal the orange glow of the cavern beyond. I shall leave you now. But try not to be too long, Atrus. We need to talk. After his father left the room, Atrus examined his feet. Gen had smeared them with an ointment, the same ointment his grandmother had always used whenever he'd grazed his knees on the rock. Atrus, what do you see? I see the Dunny City, grandmother. I see... I see the most incredible sight I've ever seen. Ah, Atrus. Come and sit with me. Atrus stepped into the solid stone kitchen where his father sat eating. How do you feel now? Hungry. Good. At Gen's summons, a tall, bald man entered the room. Atrus, this is Regis, my servant. The man stood there, holding a basket piled with fruit. I'm pleased to meet you, Regis. It's no use talking to him, Atrus. Regis is a mute. But he understands commands. If you need something, simply ask him. Well, boy, are you hungry or not? Did you grow these fruits, father? In a manner of speaking. Reaching out, Atrus picked one. It was rotten. It fell apart as he lifted it, revealing its dark brown innards. Ah, take them away. Come, Atrus. It's time you found out why I brought you here to Dunny. A twist of steps led up to a room with a raised dais at its center. The walls were lined with thousands of books. This is the library where you will come for your daily lessons. But first, I want to show you why I brought you here, to learn the ways of Dunny. At the center of the dais was a circular pool surrounded by five marble pedestals. Choose a book, any book on the shelves. Atrus examined the spines of the books. There was no writing on any of them. He took one down. Gan took it and placed it reverently on a pedestal. The left-hand page was blank, but on the right... The picture is so clear, Father, like staring through a window. A strange mound filled the foreground. Behind it was a lush backdrop of emerald green with a cloudless sky above. As Atrus watched in amazement, the image slowly shifted to the right, showing a stream that tumbled between rocks, then fell spectacularly into a crystal pool. You'll live as Dunny now, Atrus. This is what you were born for. Give me your hand. Atrus felt the skin on his palm tingle. His hand seemed drawn to the image. Then, with a sudden lurch, he felt himself sucked into the page. Gone was the library. Just in front of him was the mound. 
below was the stream, with the waterfall just beyond. Atrus fell to his knees, astonished. Behind him, Gen shimmered into being. Get up onto your feet, boy. Where, where are we? Once in the time of their greatness, the Dunny ruled a million worlds, using what was grown in them to provision themselves. But now there's only you and I, Atrus. We too, and the worlds we shall make. Make, father? Yes, Atrus. I made the rock on which we stand and the air we are breathing. I made the grass, the trees, and the earth. All that you see, I made. You will be my apprentice, Atrus, and I will teach you about the books. Would you like that? Yes, father. I'd like that very much. In the weeks that followed, Atrus fell under his father's spell. Mornings, he worked making repairs to the mansion. In the afternoons, he would sit in the library while Gan taught him about Dunny culture. One day, he was there alone when his father came in. I want you to come into the city with me, Atrus, to help me find some books. Since he'd first arrived on Kavir, Atrus had never been off the island. Daily, he had looked to the distant city and dreamed of going there. As his father cast off, Atrus stared across the Orange Sea toward the Dunny capital. Ancient it was, beyond all imagining. What's so special about the books, Father? You said they can't make them anymore. I don't understand. All in good time. Right now, all you have to do is find them for me. Atrus dozed for a while, then woke with a start, surprised to find himself still on the boat, still traveling. So, you're awake at last. Look behind you. You almost missed it. Atrus turned to find the city looming over him, tier after tier of streets and buildings, covered walkways and delicate arches rising into the great ceiling of the cavern. And directly in front of him, a massive arch, each block the size of a great mansion. Kareth's Arch. Kareth. Today we will explore the Jeteri sector of the city. With luck, we shall find what we are looking for in the common library there. Directly ahead of them lay the harbor. Beyond lay the city. And what devastation the Dunny capital had suffered. Barely a structure was undamaged. Gan moored the boat and led his son into the main square. It was littered with chunks of stone that had fallen from the city above. Come, we have a long walk ahead of us. At the end of an avenue bordered by massive houses stood the Dunny Gatehouse. Looking up at it, Atrus translated the words cut into the stone. District of Jitta'eri. These were the houses of important men, Atrus. Only the very rich could afford to live here. Coming to a crossroads, Gan studied his notebook. He often consulted the book. Yet strangely, Atrus had never seen him write in it. Maybe he does it at night when I'm not there. We need to go this way. The main square is ten minutes' walk from here. On the far side of the main square was a huge building with white marble steps in front. The common library. Atrus followed his father inside into a long chamber filled with pedestals. On them lay open books, secured to the lecterns by heavy gold chains. Here they are. No, these are of no use to us. Atrus frowned, not understanding. He stepped up to the nearest pedestal and looked down at the right-hand page. There was a layer of dust over the image. He went to brush it aside, but Gen suddenly pulled his hand away. 
You must never do that, Atris. That age might be dead. You would be drawn into an airless void. I... I'm sorry. Never mind, Atris. Somewhere here there is a switch that will let us into the restricted book room. Atris examined the pedestals until he found a tiny brass hemisphere set into the back of one of them. He pressed it. Excellent. A rectangle of the floor began to sink, revealing a stairway. Atrus followed his father down into a large space filled with workbenches. Eight cloaked skeletons sat slumped over their work. What is this place? This is the restricted book room. Gen was searching the nearest shelves. What should I look for? Gen gestured to a door at the back of the room. Have a look in there, Atrus. It's the book storage room. They would not have had time to lock it. Atrus began to understand how quickly catastrophe had befallen Dunny. He found eight large leather-bound books on one of the room's shelves. Atrus reached up for one and opened it. Nothing. The pages were blank. One by one, he took the others down, but they too were empty. Defeated, he placed one beneath his arm and went back into the larger room. Gen was bent over a tray filled with ink pots. Well, did you find any? It's no good. There's nothing in them. Here, let me see that book. This is fine. This is just what I was looking for. Are there others? Eight in all. But I thought you wanted ones with ages in them. These, these are just books. Bring them here, Atrus. These are Cortinia, blank books waiting to be written. The pens and ink are here too, so we can leave and be home by supper. Two weeks had passed, and Atrus had begun to think that his father had forgotten the Cortinia. But Gen was smiling now. Are you ready, Atrus? Ready, father? It's time you learned how to write. Gen sat at his desk and drew out a quill pen and an ink pot. Then he pulled a leather-bound book toward him, opening it to the first page. Dunny characters mean much more than you previously understood, Atrus. They were developed over thousands of years for the specific task of describing ages, of creating other worlds. As soon as the first word is written, a bridge is set up to that newly created world. It sounds like magic. And so it is. But you and I are Dunny. And so, I shall share a secret with you. We are not ordinary men, Atrus. We are gods. Gods? Yes. Common men but dream and wake. We, however, can live our dreams. We can use words to conjure worlds. If anyone without Dunny blood tried to do it, they would fail. It would be impossible. Gan took another, much smaller book from a pile at the side and held it up. Whenever you travel to another age, you must always carry a linking book with you. If you did not, you would be trapped there. Each linking book contains the essence of the larger book. You must always make at least one. That is the first rule, one you must never forget. But what if you change the age? Would the linking books cease to work? No. The linking books will still link to the changed world. This writing, it sounds so powerful, so astonishing. Oh, it is, Atrus. It is. That night, Atrus decided to remind his father that it was time for them to go visit Anna. Father, when are we going back to the cleft? There? 
You want to go back there? Yes, you said... I said that to keep your grandmother quiet. I never meant but to... But you promised. You said... I simply don't have the time, and even if I did, that woman is poisonous. Don't you understand that yet? You're wrong. Sit down, Atrus. I shall tell you a story. Then you can tell me if I am wrong or not. Thirty years ago, when I was a child of four, there was a war. A young man named Viavis started it. He was the son of a nobleman, but he was not content with that. Viavis's crimes were heinous. Eventually he was caught and tried before the council and sentenced to prison. But several of his young friends helped him to flee Dunny. For six months nothing was heard of him but rumors that he had returned. Then an official in one of the guilds was stabbed. A bomb went off in one of the main inkworks. A book was desecrated. Finally, the council took action, but it was too late. Viavis had been in the lower city, fomenting trouble among the lower classes. By that evening, the whole lower city was in chaos as the rioting mob roamed the streets, killing whoever dared stand against them. My home was miles away, on a great bluff of rock. I remember standing there as the roar of the mob and the cries of the dying came up from below. It was six weeks before the rebels were subdued and Viavis captured. This time, the council decided that Viavis was to be executed. It was a wise decision. Yet, before it could be passed, one final witness stepped forward. A woman named Tiana. She was much respected by the council, so they let her speak. In her view, Viavis had done his worst and Dunny had survived. Furthermore, she argued, if it had not been Viavis, some other rabble-rouser would have stirred up the mob, for the discontent had been that of a whole class. Her eloquence swayed the lords, and Viavis was placed in prison. Three days later, he escaped. And this time, when he returned to Dunny, it was with an army of fanatics who had one thing in their minds, to destroy Dunny. Tiana was wrong, you see. The woman was a foolish meddler. And my father was a fool for listening to her. Your father? Yes. Or is that something else Anna hasn't told you? Tiana was her dunny name, given to her by my father, your grandfather, when he married her. Tiana is your grandmother, Atrus. No, no, it isn't possible. She would have said... Her words destroyed dunny. Her meddling. But she couldn't have. She couldn't. No. You should not let sentiment blind you, Atrus. It's a lesson your grandmother never learned. That is why I cannot let you go back to her. Anna was good to me. She looked after me, made sure I never starved. Yes. And she taught me, too. Taught you? Taught you what? How to survive in a crack? How to eat dust and dream of rain? No. She taught me more than you've ever taught me. Tell me, boy. What did that woman ever teach you that was any use at all? She taught me Dunny, that's what. <laughs> taught you to lie, more like. Atrus met his father's eyes squarely. Then he spoke slowly, calmly, in fluent Dunny. She taught me what is good and what is to be valued, those truths which cannot be shaken or changed. Slowly, the mocking smile faded from Gen's lips. You knew. You sat there all that time pretending not to know, Dunny? Mocking me? No, I... Why, you deceitful, ungrateful little boy. It would serve you right if I took you back to that pathetic little hole. Ah, but she would like that, wouldn't she? 
No, we are not going back. Not now, not ever! Taking Atrus by the neck, Gen marched him to his room and threw him inside. Father! Please, you've got to listen! Father! For three days, Gen did not return. Then, finally... Atrus, are you awake? I need to talk with you. All right. He heard the key turn in the lock. A moment later, Gan stepped into the room. He looked immensely weary. His pale eyes ringed from lack of sleep. His clothes unwashed. The same clothes he had been wearing the evening he had argued with Atrus. Atrus sat up, his back against the massive carved headboard, looking across at Gan, who was outlined in the half-light by the door. I've been thinking. We speak only in Dunny henceforth. Atrus started again, this time in Dunny. I've been thinking, trying to see it from your point of view, and I think I understand. And what conclusion did you come to? I think I understand why you feel what you feel about Anna, why you hate her so much. No, Atrus, I do not hate her. It would be easy if it were that simple. But I do blame her. I blame her for what she did to Dunny, and for leaving my father here knowing he would die. I don't see the difference. No? It is hard to explain just what I feel sometimes. She is my mother, and so she has to love me. It is her duty. But she does not like me. To be honest, she never has. It was the same with Viovis. She never liked him. She thought him odious and foul-tempered. Yet, when it came down to it, she felt her duty was to love him, to save him from himself. She was a hypocrite. She did not act on what she knew to be the truth. It was a weakness that destroyed a race of gods. And yet you two survived. She saved you, brought you out of Dunny. Yes. Some days I wonder why. Some days I ask myself whether that too was not weakness of a kind. Whether it would not have been better for us both to have died back there and end it all cleanly. As it is... Atra stared at his father in the long silence that followed seeing him clearly for the first time. There was something quite admirable about the spirit within him, about the determination to try to restore and recreate the Dunny culture single-handedly. Admirable, but futile. Can I go see Anna? No, Atrus. My mind is made up. It would be too disruptive. But she'll worry if I don't go back. Be quiet, boy! I said no, and I mean no. I shall send Regis with a note informing her that you are well and that you cannot see her again. Beyond that, I can permit no further contact. As for your deception, I was gravely disappointed in you. But your knowledge of Dunny will save me a great deal of time. It is possible you might even start a book of your own. A book? Yes. But you must promise me never to question my word again or scheme behind my back. You must be absolutely clear on this, Atrus. I am master here, and my word is law. Realizing he had no other choice, Atrus bowed his head. I promise. Where are we? This is one of my more recent worlds. I call it my 37th age. Gen reached up into a recess of the cave they were in and made sure his linking book was still there. It was. Atrus watched silently. For three years now, he had been accompanying his father to these ages, and never once had Gen thought to give an age a name. It was always numbers. 
Atrus followed his father outside, wondering what kind of world this was. They emerged onto a moonlit hillside. Below them lay an island with an oval lake at its center. It's very beautiful. In some ways, this is my least successful experiment. I tried to keep it too simple. Huddled around the side of the lake were rectangular buildings, lit by lamps which hung over their doorways. It's inhabited? Don't expect much. The people of this age are simple folk. Even so, Atrus was eager to meet them. Gen had never taken him to an inhabited age. They descended the grassy slope. Then from the edge of the village, a shout went up. Someone had spotted them. At once, there was a buzz of voices down below and signs of frantic activity. Are we in danger? Be patient, Atrus. You are here to observe. A dozen figures came up the slope toward them, carrying torches. They dropped to their knees before Gan. Welcome, great master. Your dwelling is prepared. Good. Gather the villagers. I shall speak to them at once. They went down into the village. Below was a harbor with a dozen small fishing boats. People were gathering from all over now. Gen faced the crowd, whose number had grown to several hundred. People of the 37th age, this is my son, Atrus. We shall stay with you for a time, and you will treat him as you do me. Whatever he asks, you will do. Understood? It is understood. Good. He dismissed them with a gesture, then turned to Atrus. Come inside. Atrus followed his father into the great meeting hut. There were rugs and screens, golden goblets and bowls. Dominating the room was a huge desk, like the one in Gen's study. Atrus could see that this hut doubled as Gen's home when he was on this age. Atrus, I brought you here to answer your questions concerning the making of an age. To that end, you will keep a notebook while you are here and write down your observations. I also want you to see the awe in which we are held in the ages. Awe, Father? Yes, Atrus, awe. For are we not gods? Do they not owe their very breath to us? Would they be here had I not written them? You will stay with one of the locals, an old widow woman. Be courteous, but aloof, you understand? I understand. Good. My acolyte is outside. He will show you the way. The acolyte led Atrus up the hill. As they approached the hut, the old woman stepped back, allowing him to enter. Inside it was clean and warm, and smelled of the herbs that hung on the walls. You want to eat? Thank you. I'm not really hungry. Ah, you want to sleep? I, uh, yes, if you would show me my bed. He wasn't really tired, but he could sense the woman's awkwardness. She went across the room and pulled the curtain away. Like home. Beg pardon, Master? When I was a child, with my grandmother, I had a mattress like this. Is it no good? Uh, no, no, it's wonderful. And can I change my mind about the food? I bring you soup and bread, yes? Marvelous. Atrus felt suddenly at ease. Soon the old woman returned, carrying a tray with some soup and brown bread. Atrus sat enjoying the simple meal. When he finished, he looked up at the old woman. Was it okay? It was wonderful. The best I've ever tasted. You want more? Can I? It was as if, with those two little words, he had offered her all the riches of Dunny 
Yes, you need your food, eh? You growing boy! The old woman woke him before dawn. Young master, forgive me, but the Lord Gen wants to see you. As Atreus walked down the slope, he saw the acolyte. The man bowed deeply. What is your name? My name is One. My birth name, though, was Coenna. Coenna. One is the name my father gave you? Yes. Of course. I should have known. Have you been my father's helper long? A thousand days. So Gen created this age only three years ago. I wonder if they existed before that. Do these people have memories of a time before Lord Gen came among them? What is that? That? That is a bird, Master. A bird? It's more like a rodent than a bird. It looks too heavy to fly. And those furred wings. Why would Gen create such a creature? Or did he? What if it wasn't deliberate? What if it was an accident? You sent for me, Father? Yes. I thought we should continue with your lessons, Atrus. Gan showed him a map of the island. Atrus touched the bottom left-hand corner. Where's that? Gone. And that other smaller island? Gone! How? Is this what you want me to look for? Things disappearing? No, Atrus. I want you simply to observe. Gan took a notebook from his desk and handed it to Atrus. In this book are phrases pertaining to this age. I want you to try to unravel the puzzle of this world, to look back from the world to the words, and to try to understand why certain things resulted. You see, the web of relationships is complex. The meaning of a phrase can be altered greatly by the addition of another, and contradictions can destroy an age. They can make it break apart under the strain of trying to resolve the conflicting instructions. Now go. Atrus sat high above the lake, his father's notebook open at his side, and contemplated the phrase that described the soil. He knew how important soil was. It was the rich soil of Anna's mind that had nurtured him, bringing him to ripeness. Suddenly, he heard a tiny cry behind him. He ran toward the sound. It was a girl. She had fallen into a deep crack in the earth, a crack that hadn't been there the last time he looked. It was eight or nine feet down to the bottom. Don't worry. I'll get you out. Atrus needed something he could throw down to her. But there was nothing handy, and her position was getting worse. There was only one way to save her. He began to lower himself into the crack. Reach up and take hold of my foot. He felt something brush the tip of his boot. It was still too high. He moved down a fraction more and felt her hand close about his ankle. Good. Now hold on tight. And don't struggle or we'll both fall in. Slowly, he hauled himself over the edge, then reached down and pulled her up. She sat beside him on the grass, trembling, staring at the black wound in the earth. He wrapped his cloak around her. Are you okay? Yes. No. What, what happened? What is it? I don't know. Perhaps my father does. The girl will remain here with the Acolyte until I return, Atrus. 
You shall say nothing. Do you understand? I do not want the islanders to panic. There is a simple explanation, and I shall find it. Yes, Father. I shall be gone only a few hours. Father, I had planned to go out fishing this afternoon. Should I cancel that now? No. Carry on as though nothing has happened. Now go fetch the acolyte. You, girl, take a seat in the corner and take that cloak off. Only Dunny should wear such a cloak. The fishing boat was owned by an old man named Tarkuk and his son Barilli. As they sailed out into the open sea, Atrus looked down through the translucent water. Somewhere around here, there had been a small island. Now there was nothing. What did that mean? What was happening here in this age? The sea stretched into the distance, but where the horizon should have been, it seemed hazy. What's that mist? It is where the sea ends. But surely there's something beyond the mist. <clears throat> Would you like to fish, master? No. Can we go out farther? Farther? Yes, out there, where the mist is. The currents are too strong out there. Nonsense. I want to go there. They could deny him nothing. He was their god, as Gen had said. Atra shook his head as he noticed the superstitious fear in their eyes. Then suddenly, as the wall of mist approached, the wind completely died. They raced along parallel to that great wall of whiteness, pulled by the current, the water beneath them boiling and bubbling. They were caught. Tarkuk and Barilli fell to their knees in terror. Tarkuk, Barilli, listen to me. Get off your knees. Praying won't do any good. We have to do something. Do something? Yes, come on. If we all row, we might pull free. Tarkuk shook his head slowly. Atrus gripped the man's shoulders and shook him. I command you, row! As my master commands. Come, Birilli, row! Here, let me help. Straining, they hauled their way across the water, the wall of whiteness receding slowly, until breathless, they relaxed, staring back at the mist. Well done. Ha! But Tarkuk and his son were strangely silent. What is it? We... We have cheated the whiteness. Cheated the whiteness? What do you mean? But the old man would say no more. As clouds gathered overhead, Atrus ran toward his father's tent. Coenna came to the doorway. Master, are there more cracks? No. But there is something I want explained. When I was out on the boat, the old man said something about cheating the whiteness. You have been out to the mist wall. What is it? Tell me, or I shall have my father wring it from you. The whiteness was our master before your father came. And my father knows nothing of this. Nothing. The old man and his son. What will happen to them? They will die. What superstitious nonsense. Go fetch the villagers. It is time I talk to them. The sky was darkening as Atrus mounted the steps of the meeting hut and turned to face the waiting crowd. A light rain fell. Everyone was there, every last man, woman, and child on the island. Tarkuk and Barilli accepted. Atrus swallowed nervously, then raising his hands the way he'd seen his father do, began to speak trying to make his voice boom in the same sonorous way. This afternoon, we went out to the mist wall. 
We sailed the dark current and came back. Did the whiteness take me? No, nor shall it. In fact, when my father returns, he and I shall go out beyond the mist wall. It cannot be done. You disbelieve? Coenna fell silent, his head bowed. All will be well. The whiteness is angry. See how it searches for you. Nonsense. It's only the storm. But no one was listening. The islanders were pulling at their hair and wailing. In the brilliant flash of the lightning, Atra saw his father striding down the path between the huts. Atra stood there before his father in the tent, head bowed. The terrified islanders had fled back to their huts while the storm raged, but Gen was in no mood to reassure them. What brought the trouble on? I sailed out to the mist wall. And you found the dark current? You know of it? It is unfortunate, but it seems the experiment here has failed. This age is unstable. Slowly, but surely it is deteriorating. Without a radical rewriting of this age, I fear it is fated to deteriorate still further. And the cracks, Father, what causes those? Ah, it must be some fault in the underlying structure. Can you fix it? No doubt I could, but right now we have another problem. This so-called whiteness. Let us deal with that first. Gen crouched beside the crack. He had spent hours back in Dunny, finding the right words in the ancient book, but for some reason, they made no difference. If the principles had only been written somewhere. But the guildmasters had passed down their secrets only by word of mouth. Exasperated, Gen turned and saw his acolyte standing there. What is it, one? I... I wondered if you wanted anything to eat, Master. Eat? How can the fellow think of food at a time like this? Only I could remove the mist wall. Of course! It's been staring me in the face all the time. The ocean. I have only to make the ocean warm. One, tell Atrus I shall return in an hour. In the meantime, have the villagers prepare a feast such as they have never had before. Atrus stood thinking of what his father had said. It was not the islanders' fault there were flaws in their age. Surely it was his and Gan's duty, as the masters of this age, to set things right. If only he could do something. An idea suddenly came to him. What if he could stay here for a few months to investigate the problem more fully? But would Gan agree? There was a way of persuading his father, but it would mean showing Gen the age he had been writing in his practice book. He had meant to wait for the proper moment, but if waiting meant abandoning this age, then surely it wasn't worth it. What would Anna have done? He knew the answer. She would have stayed and tried to help. Gen returned that evening. Silhouetted against the setting sun, he called to the islanders. The whiteness is no more. The islanders crowded around, gaping at the endless ocean. They fell to their knees before Gen. Watching, Atrus frowned. Now he understood. Gen had written a new entry that had got rid of the mist wall. Let the feasting begin, and there will be no further mention of mist or whiteness. Let us celebrate this new beginning. It was late when they finally retired. We must leave tomorrow. But I thought I might be able to help. If I stayed here and made some long-term observations, we could learn what went wrong. No, Ink. 
Beatrice, I have more important concerns than this trifling age. Then why did you remove the mist wall if you were thinking simply of abandoning this age? Hmm. On second thought, perhaps you have a point. It might prove useful to investigate this age's deterioration, even if we can't fix it. You shall remain unclear, Atrus, but we shall continue to visit here to make observations. Now, good night. It was far less than Atrus had hoped for, yet it was something. As he drifted into sleep, one final insight came to him. He made the ocean warm. Two days had passed, and Atrus had not seen his father. Now Gen was waiting behind his desk. There were five books in front of him. With a jolt of surprise, Atrus recognized them. They were his. As you see, I have been reading your practice books, and I have selected five, which I feel have some small merit. I want you to choose one. I'm giving you the chance to make one of these books real. Here it was, the moment he had dreamed of, and he felt unprepared for it. Which one is it to be? This one. A good choice! Gen lifted one of the empty leather-bound books and held it out to Atrus. Atrus took it, his heart pounding. A book! His father had given him a book! Many days of painstaking work later, Gen laid the book on the desk, then opened it to the descriptive box. Shall I go first? Or would you like that honor? Atrus took a breath and placed his hand on the page. Atrus found himself standing inside a cavern. Relieved, he stepped aside, conscious that his father was linking after him. Good. The air smells fresh. You have the linking book on you, I assume? Slowly, Atrus's mouth fell open. The linking book. In his excitement, he had completely forgotten all about it. Fortunately, I did not forget. Atrus closed his eyes. He might have trapped them there forever. I'm sorry. Sorry is for fools and idiots. There was but one crucial thing you had to remember, and you forgot. What if I had not thought to bring your linking book? What then? Where would we be? Gan thrust the book into his hands then turned away, making for the entrance. I suppose you had better show me what you have written. Atrus led his father out into a cave-like depression that was open to the sky. Sunlight poured down from the clear blue heavens. There was a pool surrounded by lush vegetation. Gen pulled his glasses down over his eyes, then stepped out into the sunlight. For a long while, he was silent, almost as if he disapproved of what he saw. But when he spoke, it was with an air of surprise. This is good, Atrus. The elements complement each other perfectly. Which books did you use? As ever, Gen thought that Atrus had derived the elements of his age from various ancient books, the way Gen himself did. But this was all uniquely his. That was why it had taken him so long to write the age in his notebook. I... I can't remember. There were so many. Gen began to climb the rocks. Atrus hurried after, surprised that Gen had made no other comment. Couldn't he see? It was the cleft, simplified and without the buildings, but the shape of it, the physical materials were precisely as he remembered them. Halfway up the steps he turned, scanning the floor of the cleft 
to see whether the one specific he had written into his age had taken. There they were, tiny, delicate blue flowers. He grinned, then began to climb again. It had worked. Gen was waiting for him up above, stroking his chin as he surveyed the landscape of hills and valleys, pastures and forests. Rivers threaded their way through the verdant paradise, and over it all, a blue sky, dominated by a yellow sun, like the sun of Earth. Birds? I didn't write birds. Atrus, this world is far too conventional. You should have tried a different sun, or chosen different rock to make those mountains. Atrus looked down, dismayed. But what about that view? What about the healthy air and soil here? Oh, he knew this age was simple, but he had planned to take one step at a time. And this world wouldn't fall apart. Don't keep this age. Now that I know you can write, I shall give you other books. You can experiment in them. Then, once you have finally made an age that I am happy with, you can call that your first age. But I've named this world. I called it Inception. Let's go back now. Go back? But I wanted to take soil samples and catch one of the creatures for study. I wanted You heard me, Atrus. Now come. Back in his study in Dunny, Gen closed Atrus's book and placed it on a pile on his desk. Sit down, Atrus. We have much to do. Tomorrow is the Korfavaja on age 37. The Korfavaja? It is the ceremony for a new god. You are a true Dunny now, Atrus. A writer. You have made an age. That fact ought to be recognized. Besides, the peoples of our worlds must be reminded of our godhood now and then. What better way than a ceremony? Gan lifted a book to his desk and began to write. What are you doing, Father? Making changes. Small ones. Things you cannot see. In the age 37 book. Atrus felt himself go cold. He thought Gan had finished with making changes in that age. Father, what you said about me being conventional in my writing, what did you mean exactly? Let me be blunt with you, Atrus. You take far too long about things. Damn it, boy, you should have made a dozen ages by now. You should have experimented to see what worked and what didn't. Sticking to the tried and tested is fine for scribes, but not for us. Atrus stared at Gan, bewildered. Did his father want quick worlds? or stable worlds. You are no good to me if you work at this pace all the time. I need ages, hundreds of them. That is our sacred task, Atrus, don't you see? To make ages and populate them. Worlds we can own and govern so the Dunny will be great again. So my grandsons will be lords of a million worlds. Something was wrong. They knew it even as they stepped out beneath the dark sky of the 37th age. As they stood there, a warm, unsavory wind blew into their faces, gusting as if from a vent, its normal, strong salinity tainted by other, more bitter presences. 
Atrus looked to his father and saw how Gen grimaced, then touched his tongue against the upper palate as if to get a better taste of that unwholesome air. Gen strode on, but he had not gone more than a dozen paces before he stopped dead. Atrus went to him and saw the lake was dry, its surface filled with cracks. Fishing boats lay on their sides in the mud. Atrus looked toward the sea. There was nothing but a ledge of dry rock. A great sound of wailing and groaning came up to them on the wind. Atrus looked, trying to locate its source in the village. But the village was deserted. Then suddenly, he saw the villagers on the other side of the bridge. In front of the meeting hut, the villagers stood huddled together in fear, looking up at the black and hostile sky. Only Koenna stood, moving among them, bending down to talk to this one, or lay his hand upon that one's arm. What's happened here? I don't understand. We fixed it. Those phrases, there was nothing wrong with them. You made the ocean warm. Had that seemingly small alteration set up a contradiction? Or to achieve it, had Gen tampered with some other crucial element? Had he tilted the axis of the planet, perhaps, to bring it closer to the sun so that the water was warmer? Great Master, you have to help us. You must. Must? Who says I must? An hour had passed since they had come. Gen had sent the islanders back to their huts, forbidding them to set foot outside. And now Koenna had come to petition his master, afraid to defy him, yet equally afraid to leave things be. His world was dying, and there was only one person who could save it, the Lord Gen. Have we angered you, Master? Is this our punishment? If so, tell us how we might make amends. But please, bring back the sea and fill the lake for us. You are right. This is a punishment. A demonstration of my awesome powers. Atrus stared at his father, open-mouthed. Are the preparations for the ceremony complete? Yes, Master. Everything is ready. Then go. Gather the villagers. I do not wish to be kept waiting. But, Master, aren't you going to help us? The lake... Go! Before I slit you open like a fish. The islanders knelt on the slope before the meeting hut. Koenna raised his arms, calling upon the god to come down. Gan stepped from the darkness, wearing a gold cloak, his white hair framed by a halo of gold that flashed in the torchlight. People of the 37th age, prostrate yourselves before your new master, the great Lord Atrus. Reluctantly, Atrus came and stood beside his father. His cloak and halo were a brilliant red. The people pressed their foreheads to the earth. The Lord Atrus is our master. He blesses us with his presence. And now behold the great Lord Atrus. As Koenna lifted an astonishing pendant of blood-red jewels and placed it around Atrus's neck, Gen pointed toward the sky. For the briefest moment, Atrus saw the surprise in his father's face and knew the thunderclap had been sheer coincidence. Behold the rain! And then, as if he really had commanded it, the heavens opened. Two hundred faces turned up in awe as the precious water fell on them. The handmaiden. Where is the handmaiden? Koenna gestured toward the girl Atrus had saved. Petrified, she clutched a garland of flowers. Seeing how it was, Gen dragged her toward the temple. Appalled, Atrus started forward, 
Father, let her go! Gan threw the girl down at Atrus's feet. The garland. Present the Lord Atrus with the garland. Slowly, the girl got up onto her knees. The garland was now mud-splattered and ripped. Lord Atrus! Gan kicked the girl aside disgustedly. Dismiss them, one! But Koenna wasn't listening. He was staring at the lake, watching the precious water drain away into the cracks. It would have to rain for a thousand years to fill that lake, for it drained into the sea, and the sea now lay a hundred yards below that ledge of rock that had once been a seabed. Master, you have to save us. Please, Master, I beg you. Come, Atrus, the ceremony's over. Gen strode off toward his tent. Atrus tossed away his pendant and cloak and ran after him. Father, we must get back and change things before it's too late. Too late? It is already too late. Look at it. I said it was unstable. No! You can erase the changes you made and put things right. You can. You told me so. After all, you're a god, aren't you? This last seemed to hit home. Gan gave a brief nod, then strode toward the cave, leaving Atrus to run after him. For an hour now, Gan had sat at his desk in silence, sucking on his pipe. You have to do something. You have to. They're dying back there. There was no response, not even the flicker of an eyebrow. Atrus grimaced, trying not to imagine their suffering back there on the 37th age, trying not to think of the old woman and the girl. But it was impossible. He stared at Gan. It was the first time he had seen this side of his father, this indecisiveness. This hideous indifference. Something snapped in him. Stepping up to the desk, Atrus leaned across, meaning to take the book. Won't you help them, Father? Won't you? We could make changes. Changes? <sighs> so that's it, is it? You can't fix it. Did I say that? For a moment, Gen glared back at his son. Then, opening the book of the 37th age, he crossed out the last few entries. There, I've fixed it. You can check for yourself. The air in the cave was musty, but no more so than on other occasions he had gone there. It was, and this was the important point, free of the hideous stench of sulfur. The very normality of it raised Atrus's spirits. Atrus climbed out of the cave, then stood on a boulder overlooking the slope, breathing in the clear, sweet air. It was true. Gan had fixed it. There was water in the lake and grass on the slopes. The village seemed peaceful. He hurried down, keen to ask them what had happened. But suddenly, he stopped. The meeting hut was gone, and the tent. Hearing a noise, he turned. Koenna stood holding a wooden club, and there was fear in his face. Koenna? It's me, Koenna. Don't you recognize me? Atrus slowly backed away. This was not the 37th age he had lived in. Atrus understood what had happened. His father's erasures in the book had taken them back down the central trunk of the great tree of possibility and along another branch entirely. Atrus took one last long look at the age, then turned and fled toward the cave.
Atrus found Gan in a stupor by the fireplace, his pipe on the floor beside him. Wake up! I need to talk to you! Leave me be! Go to your room, boy, and leave me in peace. No! We need to talk! What could we possibly have to talk about, you and I? I want to talk about the art, about what it is, what it really is. What do you know about the art? Enough to know that your ages are unstable because you don't understand what you're doing. You're just a boy. What do you know? I know that you don't understand the whole. How dare you think to criticize me? I taught you all you know. How long have you been doing this, eh, boy? Three years? And how long have I been studying the art? Thirty years. Since I was four. To Atrus's dismay, Gan picked up Atrus's book and opened it. This phrase here. That's how a novice writes, boy. It lacks strength. It lacks economy of expression. He took the pen and dipped it in the ink pot. Atrus watched, horrified, knowing what was to come, yet still unable to believe that his father would actually dare to tamper with his age. Please, there's a reason for all those words. They have to be there. In what book did you find this nonsense about the blue flowers? It wasn't in a book. Ridiculous, frivolous nonsense. That's all it is. This is overwritten. There is far too much unnecessary detail. And without another word, Gan proceeded to score out the section about the flowers. No! I misjudged you, didn't I, Atrus? There is something of your grandmother in you, something headstrong, something that likes to meddle. Gan went on, crossing out more phrases. Atrus swallowed deeply, then said what he'd been meaning to say all along, whether it angered Gan or not, because he had to say it now or burst. You said that you had fixed the 37th age. I did. But it's not the same. The villagers didn't know me. Father, let me fix it. Let me help them. Father? The muscle beneath Gen's right eye twitched. He held the book of the 37th age aloft, then glanced at the fireplace. This book is defective. No! Atrus tried to stop him, but it was too late. Gen cast the age 37 book into the flames. Atrus stood there, horrified. The bridge between the ages was destroyed. Atrus looked down at his journal, then read what he had written. My father is mad. The 37th age had proved that beyond all doubt. Gen was no god, but a weak and foolish man, irresponsible and vain. Yes, and for all his bluster about making Dunny great again, he had forgotten what it was that had made the Dunny extraordinary, the reason why their empire had lasted so long. It was not their power. It was their restraint, their astonishing humility. So where did he go from here? Should he try to get back to Anna and the cleft? Or should he find a hiding place in the city? Whatever, he had to go and see Gan one last time, to tell him, face to face, just why he had to leave. He could not simply run away, or he would be forever in his father's shadow. He went up to his father's study. Atrus was surprised to find the room so dimly lit. Books had been scattered everywhere, as if in some fearful rage. Atrus searched, but there was no sign of his own book. He turned to the fire anxiously, fearing the worst, and almost tripped over his father. 
again lay sprawled on the floor behind the desk. Atrus picked up the pipe, then put it down again in disgust. He was about to leave when he noticed the notebook Gan was always consulting. Grasping it, he opened it to the first page. The book of Atrus? Surely that must be wrong. And then he understood. It didn't mean him. This was his grandfather's book. The last thread that had connected him to his father broke in that instant. There he'd been, admiring his father for his courage, his patience in finding a path through the tunnels back to Dunny. And all the while, the path had been clearly marked here in his grandfather's notebook. Atrus stared at the figure stretched out on the floor beside his feet. Why weren't you what I wanted you to be? Why did you have to be so... so small a man? Gan woke with a pounding head. Atrus. Atrus, where are you? Atrus! Atrus! Nothing. The great mansion was empty. Gen pulled out a metal box. From it, he took the single page he had put there and slipped it into his pocket. Regis! Regis, where are you, man? Not waiting for the mute, Gen hurried down to the jetty. It was empty, the boat gone from its mooring. Curse the boy. Curse his ingratitude. Gan lifted his head and saw that Regis was standing just above him. Boyd took the boat. We must follow him. The mute went over to a stack of boxes and moved them aside, revealing an ancient dunny boat. Gan helped Regis haul it onto the jetty. Atrus did not get far without the missing page of the notebook. His father and Regis overtook him, and brought him back to Kavir, where he was locked in a large room. Atrus stared at the metal door in shock. Then he turned toward the desk. There lay his father's Book of the Fifth Age. A trap. Another door he hopes I'll walk through. And when I do... Remembering what his father had said about the dunny love of secret passages, he began a search. It took hours, and though he found no secret passages, he did find a dunny stone cutting tool. If he could chip away at the rock to either side of the door, he might get free. After ten minutes, the crack was more than a foot long. He lifted the cutter again, meaning to extend the fissure. But as he did, he heard the rock above him creak and groan. Atrus stepped back, not a second too soon. Now he'd done it. Now he was trapped here for sure. Atrus turned, looking to the Age 5 book. What does Gen want? If this is a prison, why did he provide me with the book as a means to escape? A trap? Maybe not. Maybe my father has given me the book simply so I won't starve. Atrus opened the book and looked at the descriptive panel. From the distant image, it seemed a pleasant, peaceful place. Yes, but what's the catch? Gen never does anything without some self-serving reason. He decided to read the book first. If it was a trap, then at least he would know what kind of age he was to end his days in. 
he could see his father's limited vision on every page. The work was short-sighted and disjointed, yet it was also surprisingly clever. And in the end, one single thing made him want to go and see, and that was the tree. Atrus sat back, amazed by the elegance of the dunny phrases that described it. He looked around the gloomy chamber. Even if age five was a trap, at least he would see the sun and feel the wind and hear the song of the birds. He thought of Koenna, the girl, the old woman, and the fisherman. Never again. He picked up the linking book, then opened the age five book to its descriptive page. Atrus found himself in a wooded glen beside a circular pool. Hearing voices, he hurried down a narrow path that led to a rocky beach. There, he searched for somewhere safe to hide the linking book. The cliff behind the beach was pocked with hundreds of tiny holes. Atrus climbed up and set the linking book inside one of them. Then he jumped down onto the sand again and walked on. Rounding a bend, and looking up, he saw the tree. It was like time itself. Atrus let his eyes slowly climb its branches. Then, realizing how exposed he was to watchful eyes, he hurried on. Nearby was a large wooden hut, like the meeting hut on the 37th age. Inside, it was dominated by a massive throne Behind the throne was a large silk screen, embroidered with the silhouette of his father. On how many other worlds has my father built such temples, I wonder? In how many ages is that man a god? Behind the screen, a narrow set of steps led down into a cave. From what he'd read, he knew that farther back, the walls were pocked with holes like those on the cliff face. It's there. Gen's linking book is there. Atrus walked on. A shimmering blue light led him to a second, smaller cave. There, an astonishing sight met his gaze. Suspended above the cave was a pool of water. Beside it stood a ladder. Atrus stared upward, amazed. It had to be an illusion. But what power sustained it? Atrus climbed the ladder until he was only inches beneath that strangely quivering surface. Raising his hand, he tentatively immersed it in the pool. It felt like water, except that when he withdrew his hand, the drips flew upward. Atrus immersed his head and shoulders, then thrust himself upward and kicked, clawing his way to the surface. Slowly, the surface came toward him. His lungs were aching now, but he was nearly there. Then, suddenly, there was a shadow on the sunlit surface above him, the outline of a human figure. Afraid, he tried to hold back, putting out his arms, but it was impossible, and in the struggle, something gave. He spasmed and threw his arms out, trying to grasp the edges of that unnatural well. Yet, even as he did, the blackness robbed him of consciousness. Slowly, Arms out, he floated to the surface of the pool he had seen when he first arrived. At first, 
Katran had thought the youth was dead. There was no pulse at his neck. Her cousin, Karel, had pushed the water from the stranger's chest and breathed into his mouth until the corpse had begun to breathe again. Karel and his brother, Erlar, had carried him back to the hut, where he now lay sleeping. Who is he? Katran posed the question to Karel in perfect dunny. Do you think he belongs to Gen? One of his servants, perhaps. He has a pair of eye instruments like Gen's. Is he marked, Karel? Well, there's nothing on his neck. She put her hand to her own neck, her fingers tracing the box-like symbol imprinted in the flesh. Uh, where am I? You are on Riven, in the village. We found you in the pool. The water had got inside you. Are you hungry? Famished. Good. Erlar poured soup into a wooden bowl and held it out to Atrus. Thank you. Atrus ate, with an appetite that made the brothers smile. And all the while, Katran sat in the corner, her green eyes watching. Atrus woke and stretched. He remembered now, the two young men smiling kindly at him. Riven, they had called this place. Gen's fifth age. He looked around the hut, then stopped, surprised to find a young woman staring back at him. She had startling green eyes. He stared back, taking in the strange, delicate beauty of her face. How long has she been there? How long has she been watching me? You almost died. What were you doing in the pool? I don't know. Where did you come from? Another place. He could see the flash of irritation in her eyes. His answers had evidently not satisfied her. What's your name? Atrus. What's yours? Catron. Catherine, that's... Catron. What have you to do with Lord Gen? I am Atrus, his son. Hmm, I thought so. So, what do you want? I want to go home, Catherine. Catron's face flickered with annoyance, but she didn't try to correct him again. Home? To the cleft. It's where I was born. It was just a crack in the earth surrounded by desert, yet it was like... Well, like paradise. And your father lived there with you? No. I grew up with my grandmother, Anna. She fed me, clothed me, taught me. She gave me everything. Catherine stared at him intensely. And then your father came? Atrus nodded. Catherine stared at him all the while, almost as if she knew him. Her tone was different now. Steady. I had a dream of you. A dream? Yes. I dreamed of a dead man floating in the pool. And now you're here. Gan stood in his study, regarding his visitor with approval. Well, has anything unusual been happening, Katran? Katran looked up from the copybook and met her master's gaze, her own eyes innocent. Nothing unusual. Good. Shall we pick up where we left off? The lesson went well, but then they always did. Katran was his best student. He never had to tell her anything more than once. After two years, she was almost fluent. 
Furious with his son, but determined to fulfill his dream of a dunny resurgence, Gan had found himself wondering, did it have to be Atrus at his side? Wouldn't another do just as well? Someone not as talented, perhaps, yet certainly more docile than his son. Someone like Catran? There's something important I have to tell you, Catran. Master? There is to be a wedding. You understand? Thirty days from now, you must make special preparations. You are to take a bride, Master? Yes, Catran. You are to be my wife. You will sit at my right hand and rule a thousand worlds with me. But, Master, I am not deserving of this honor. Maybe not. But I have chosen you, Catran, and you will prepare yourself. Thirty days, and then the ceremony will take place. Atrus found his linking book in the cliff face and linked back to Dunny. The chamber that had become his cell was as he'd left it, the age five book open on the desk. Now that he had been to Riven, he saw that there were clear flaws in the way the book had been put together. The strange water, for instance, had given him a stomach ache when he'd tried to drink it. Atrus turned the final page, nodding to himself as he read the last few entries, his father's crude attempts to stabilize age five's inherent faults. All wrong. He wished he could just score out those final entries. But no, if he were to make changes, he would do so only with great care. Riven. She called it Riven. Suddenly, Catherine was standing there, a large blue book clutched to her chest. Atrus was stunned by her sudden appearance. I followed you. I saw where you hid your linking book. He glanced at the book in her hands. I stole this from your father's study while he was asleep. What were you doing in my father's study? He takes us there. Who? Ten of us. He calls us the Guild. He has us copy things from books. He says it saves him time. The Guild? He really is mad. Trying to recreate the Dunny Guilds. The other islanders have to do as we say. Your father insists on it. So why bring me the book? You can write. I want you to fix our world. She handed him the book, and Atrus opened it. It was blank. Our world is falling apart. I'm asking for your help. Go on. There have been small tremors in the earth, and cracks and schools of dead fish floating in the bay, and the great tree is dying. But why didn't you tell me earlier? Because I wasn't sure of you at first. Why? Because of your power. The power your father has to create and destroy worlds. You think I have that power? Haven't you? I can write. Then help us, Atrus. All right. I'll help you. But I need more blank books. There are things I have to try out. Experiments. I have more books. On Riven. You'll have to help me carry them. You mean you stole more than one? Yes. Your father trusts me. He... We must work fast. There are only 30 days. I don't understand. What's happening in 30 days? But Catherine did not answer him. Instead, she placed her hand over the age five image on the page. When Atrus linked back, Catherine was waiting for him. Taking his hand, she hurried him along the cliff to the tree. As they approached, he saw a deep crack in the trunk, large enough for him to walk into. 
You see, this was his punishment. His punishment? For what? One of the guild questioned something Lord Gen said, and your father was angry. He had us sacrifice the man. We fed him to the sea. Atrus remembered once again what had happened on the 37th Age. Everywhere he goes, he leaves his mark, like a signature of his incompetence. Is that why he imprisoned me with the Age 5 book? To put right what he failed to make good? Do the other guild members know what you plan to do? They would kill me if they did. They tremble before Lord Gen's every word. How is it you know so much? Because your father tells me. And he talks to himself, sometimes when I'm in his study learning to write. But that's impossible. No one but Dunny can write. It simply doesn't work for anyone else. You're sure of that? Yes. It was the first thing he ever taught me about the art. And the histories confirm it. Strangely, Catherine seemed relieved. What is it? I just thought... Well, in my book... Your book? Yes. Would you like to see it? Come, I'll show you. Katron looked across the hut to where Atrus sat reading her book. He was so different from his father. So kind. So true. This is beautiful, Catherine. The writing's wonderful. Poetic. But it's riddled with contradictions, I'm afraid. It has no structure. Catherine shrugged. Atrus handed the book back to her. I'm afraid it wouldn't work, but it paints wonderful pictures. <sighs> That's good. It must be like a dream. When I go there... But you can't. It simply wouldn't work. It's just like my dreams. She opened the book, pointing to the image. I want you to see it. Before he could object, she placed his hand upon the image. Impossible. Atrus stepped out of the air into a bowl of darkness. In the middle of it, a powerful column of water thundered straight upward. A group of large insects glided past, glowing gold and red. One passed right through his legs. The very rock smelled of roses and camphor. Everywhere he looked, the barriers between things dissolved, as in a dream. Did you imagine all of this? Most of it. Some I can't remember writing. It's almost like I stopped thinking and just write. Come, I want to show you something. She led him through a tunnel. When they came out, they were in brilliant daylight. Just as the dark side had been strange, so this was wonderful too. They stood on a hill carpeted with flowers and butterflies. Ahead of them, a waterfall rushed inward toward a central point far below. Suddenly, Atrus understood. We're on the other side. It's the source of the great torrent. It falls through. But how, he wondered. For if this existed, there was a physical reason why. This did not break Dunny laws. It merely pushed them to their limits. This is beautiful. I never guessed. There's more. Would you like to see? Look out there. Those storm clouds. They completely surround your age. You put most of the mass at its outer edge, didn't you? So the gravity... It was impressive, all right. He turned, looking about him, then stopped dead. Just across from him was a patch of tiny, delicate blue flowers with star-like petals and velvet dark stamens.
how did you know? Know what? Well, I thought... No, it doesn't matter. Catherine, what are you to my father? I... I am his servant. There's more, isn't there? Yes. I am to be married to him. Married? He has commanded me. There is to be a ceremony on Riven in thirty days. I'd rather die. You must help me, Atris. We have thirty days to change things. And if we can't? Catherine looked about her at the age she had written, then back at Atris, her green eyes burning. We can do wonders, you and I. Wonders. Atra stood on a high cliff in the experimental age he had created. He knew that age five was doomed unless he made vital changes. Gen had placed age five's moon too close. This was increasing the tides, and ultimately the moon would smash into the planet's surface. He needed to push it back into a stable orbit. Atrus waited, watching the sunset. Then he saw the moon behind him in the sky. Wrong. It's much too close. The tremors began at once, the plateau vibrating as if some machine had started up beneath his feet. Then, ahead of him, he saw it. The huge wave towered over the surrounding pinnacles of rock, smashing them as if they were nothing. Home. As Atrus placed his hand upon the page, the whole sea seemed to lift up, the noise so loud it made his whole skull tremble. Atrus lay in an exhausted heap on the cold floor of the chamber, back on Dunny. Catherine was sitting there in his chair, unaware of his return, her attention focused on the book she was reading. Catherine? Atrus, are you all right? Oh, I'm okay. Just a little trouble with the moon. Catherine, why are you here? I thought we said it would be best if you stayed unriven. I know, but I don't want to go back. But you must. You can't stay here. I've been working on something. I wanted to surprise you. Catherine turned and handed him the book. What is this? I've written us an age. Somewhere we can go. I've named it Mist. But this is so different from your other age. You don't like it? No, it's what I would have done had I time. You... I think you are astonishing. <laughs> I've been studying. Atrus was astounded by the restraint in the writing, the deep understanding of Dunny principles that surpassed even his own. <laughs> there are one or two final touches, but when they're done... You'll take me there? Of course. Now, out of my way, I have work to do. Atrus sat back after Catherine had gone. If his father was allowed to triumph on age five, then he would triumph everywhere, for there was no end to Gen's ambitions. Having seen Catherine's two ages, he knew Gen might yet achieve his dream of resurrecting the Dunny Empire, or at least a shadow of it, of creating countless slave worlds, the fate of millions subject to his will. There was but one solution— to trap Gen on age five and destroy all the linking books that led out of that age. But to do so, 
Atrus would have to take the risk that he, too, might be trapped there. And now that Catherine had created Mist Island for them, as a sanctuary away from Gen, the thought of failure was hideous. Thinking of Catherine's latest book, he wondered briefly if she really had written it, or whether, like his father, she had copied elements of it. It was so different from her other world. He focused again on the task at hand. He needed to find Gen's linking book. The most likely place was the cave behind the temple. Atrus, Atrus, wake up. What? What's going on? Gen has moved the date forward. We've only got three days. Catherine, do you know where Gen keeps his linking book? Yes. Can you take me back to Riven and show me where? What are you going to do? Does my father expect to see you again before the wedding ceremony? No. Good. Then we'll take all of this to Mist. All but the Mist and Age 5 books. Then I want you to stay there, Catherine. I want you to keep away from both Dunny and Riven. But you'll need help. The biggest help will be knowing that you're safe. But what are you going to do? Do you trust me, Catherine? Yes, Atrus. Then wait for me. When I've dealt with my father, I'll join you on Mist. Now come, show me where my father keeps his linking book. Careful not to be seen, they walked quickly into the temple's shadowy interior, already decked out for the wedding ceremony. My father with Catherine. No, it will never happen. He followed Catherine down into the cave. She reached into one of the holes, then withdrew Gen's linking book. Atrus fixed the position in his mind. Then nodding, he gestured for her to put it back. Come, let's go to your hut and get the remaining books. Atrus. Yes? She leaned close and kissed his cheek. Just a single gentle kiss. Then she moved on. I could live here. Atrus smiled. The air on Mist Island was clean and clear, the smell of pine strong. Overhead the sky was pale blue and the sea was calm and green. He stood on a wooden jetty wearing a knapsack full of books. Catherine stepped out of the air, also wearing a knapsack. This is beautiful. You wrote it so. You did a marvelous job. Come, let me show you the cabin. You've built a cabin here already? She took his hand and led him up the grassy slope to the cabin. It's a good beginning. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. We could build things here. Perhaps a library of my own. Come, I'll see you settled in, then I'd best get back. Atrus, are you sure I can't help? He hesitated, then drew her close and kissed her gently. A proper kiss this time. Their first. Just wait for me here. Promise? I promise. Even after the last of the books was safely stacked in the cabin, Atrus lingered on mist. But he could not stay. He had to stop Gan, even if it meant he never saw mist or Catherine again. Come, let's sit and talk before I go. About what? About the future. About whether you'll make it back from Riven, you mean? I will be back. You must destroy the linking book back to Dunny the moment I'm gone. 
Then if Genlink's here, he will be trapped with me and with the supply of blank books. Atrus knew it was the one flaw in his plan. To be certain of trapping Gen, he ought to destroy his own linking book from Riven to Dunny the instant he returned to age five. But that would also trap him there, and he wanted to get back. No, not wanted. Needed. To be with her. I'll be careful. The moment he's on Riven, I'll burn his linking book. Then I only have to destroy my own. What about you, Atrus? I know almost nothing about you. Your grandmother, for instance. Do you remember what she was like? Reaching into the almost empty knapsack, he removed his journal and handed it to her. I want you to read this while I'm gone. It might... well, it might help you to understand me. In case you don't come back. Yes. He reached out, laying his fingers on her cheek. For one tiny moment, that was all. The two of them beside the water. Catherine with her eyes closed, Atrus's journal in her lap. Her face tilted to meet the gentle touch of his fingers. You'd better go now, Atrus. The idea of leaving was like death itself. All he wanted in life was right here unmissed. Catherine. I'll be all right. Now go. Back on Dunny, Atrus stared at the age five book. There was only one way he could be certain of seeing Catherine again, and that was to kill his father. But that was impossible. It was not in his nature to harm another, even for the best of reasons. Anna would agree. No good can come of such ill. If I killed my father, the shadow of my guilt would blight my days with Catherine. He knew it for a certainty, and so he had to risk losing her forever. He opened the age five book and placed his hand on the image. The instant Atrus linked, the air where he'd been sitting turned strangely translucent. Abruptly, a figure appeared from the nothingness. It was Catherine. She took the mist book from Atrus's desk and slipped it into her knapsack. And as she did, a second figure shimmered out of the air. It stood behind her, watching as Catherine reached across the desk and opened the age five book to the final page. Then, as Catherine took up Atrus's pen, the figure pointed, encouraging her to begin writing. In the cave behind the temple, Atrus quickly found Gan's linking book. He slipped it into his backpack, then headed back through the temple. Just as he was about to step around the screen, he heard voices and ducked behind the throne. He will be here soon. Bring the villagers out onto the slope below the temple. They can make their offerings after the ceremony. Did you see how she smiled at Lord Gen at the rehearsal? There's no faking that. Now there's a match made in heaven. Atrus felt himself go cold. Rehearsal? Catherine had said nothing of rehearsals. Suddenly uncertain, he crept around the screen. The two men had made their way out again. Nearby was a bowl containing two golden bracelets. 
you see how she smiled at Did you see how she smiled? He felt like throwing the bowl across the room, but didn't dare. Gen must suspect nothing. Atris pushed aside all doubts and questions. Catherine is on Mist Island. I took her there myself. No one was in sight. Cautiously, he made his way down the path, heading toward the beach. As he went, he gathered sticks and leaves, until he had enough for his purpose. On the beach, he formed stones into a fire pit. Kneeling, he lit the kindling wood, blowing on it to encourage the flames, as they began to lick at his father's linking book. Now he had to retrieve his own linking book. He would hold it over the fire as he linked, letting it fall into the flames, trapping Gen here forever. He hauled himself up the cliff to the recess where his book was hidden. He squeezed inside, wriggling in until he could reach it. When Atrus came to, he was in the open air near the temple, tied to a thick pole embedded in the earth. The pain in his head was intense. Close by, on a small table, were the two age five linking books, his own and his father's, saved from the flames. So, you are back with us, Atrus. I thought for a while that I had lost you. I do not know my own strength sometimes, I'm afraid. Atrus hung his head, grimacing at the thought of Catherine. She was on mist, waiting, and now he had failed her. Ah, clever Catherine. Thinking of her, are you? You really didn't think she'd miss her own wedding. Atrus went limp as a figure stepped forward into the sunlight. It was her. She is marrying my father. He shut his eyes, and later, when he opened them again, it was to see Gan, alone, standing before the islanders, his hands raised. People of the Fifth Age, it has come to my notice that some of you have dared to nurse this imposter who dares to call himself my son. Atrus suddenly noticed Karel and Erlok, along with several others, who knelt there with hands bound. Such defiance must be punished, punished with great tides, and a blackened sun, and the very earth will shake and the great tree fall. No, he's wrong. I fixed all of those things. Atrus stopped, seeing the hideous grin of triumph on his father's face as he stepped up to him. Well done, Atrus. I knew I could count on you. Untie him. I have asked my servant here to do my bidding, and he has done so. Your world is safe now. Yet, if you transgress again, I shall destroy your world just as I created it. But let us not dwell on that now. For tonight, I shall take a daughter of this age to be my bride. Again turned triumphantly to Atrus as the islanders left. Atrus sighed, all the fight gone from him. He had been duped, used by the two of them, betrayed. Boy, you have caused me an inordinate amount of trouble. As far as I am concerned, you are no longer my son. Do you understand me? I do not need you anymore, Atrus. She's a strong young woman. My next son will not fail me. Catherine, my beloved Catherine.
Atrus looked up, surprised. The ground was trembling. No, he was imagining it. And then the ground shook violently. No! No! But even as Gen said it, a great crack opened before the temple steps. The sun, which only moments before had blazed down from the late afternoon sky, was being eaten. A curved blade of blackness devouring it inch by inch. One by one, the stars winked into place in the sudden night. The ground shook once more, knocking over the table with the linking books. Atrus rushed to pick them up, but Gen stepped in front of him, wielding a massive spear. Leave them! Get out of the way! Atrus gripped the spear to keep Gen from using it against him. Then suddenly, Gen released his grip, and Atrus found himself tumbling over, the spear falling from his grasp. All about them now, huge cracks were appearing in the earth. A red glow emanated from the fissures. Gen stood over him. The spear point pressed hard into Atrus's chest. I should have killed you long ago. Then kill me. Gen lifted the spear, his muscles tensing. Gen! Gen turned to see Catherine, one of the linking books in each hand, standing over a large crack in the ground. Harm him and I'll throw the books into the crack. Catherine, my love! Let him go! No! No, I... To Gen's astonishment, she let the linking book fall from her right hand. With a gust of flame, it vanished into the crack. Gone. No! Come now, Catherine. Let us talk about this reasonably. He lifted the spear from Atrus's chest, then throwing it aside, took a step toward her, his hand out. Remember our plans, Catherine. A thousand worlds we were going to rule. Whatever you want, I can write it for you. If you destroy that second book, we shall be trapped here on a dying world. Gen took a second step. You want the linking book? Then have it! With that, she tossed the linking book high into the air, out over the smoldering crevice. With a gasp of horror, Gen dove for the book, but he was too late. With a burst of flame, it vanished. Gen lay there at the edge of the crack in the earth, seething with fury. Getting up onto his knees, he turned, looking for them. But Atrus and Catherine had gone. All at once, a lightning bolt hit the summit of the great tree. In the blazing light of the fireball, Gen saw the two of them as they ran. He knew now where they were headed. Getting to his feet, he began to run. Catherine, wait, you've got to tell me what's happening. Don't worry. Everything's going just as we planned. As who planned? Anna and I. Anna? It isn't possible. Atrus numbly let her lead him onward. They were following a narrow crack that, unlike the others, glowed an ice-cold blue. And then suddenly, where the trees ended, the fissure opened out to form a kind of cleft, the edge of it outlined by that cold blue light. Inside, however, it was dark, an intense darkness filled with stars. Atrus stopped, astonished. Catherine stood there, a beatific smile on her lips. She opened her knapsack and took out the mist book. Here. But what... Did you ever wonder what it would be like to go swimming out among the stars? We could fall into the night and be cradled by stars and still return to the place where we began. Placing her hand on the image, she was gone. Atrus held up the book. But what do I do? That's easy, Atrus. You give the book to me. 
Gen stood there, a large jagged rock in his hand. Atrus looked down at the mist book in his hands. If he used it to return to mist, the book would remain in his father's possession, and Gen would surely follow him. He thought about throwing the book into the fissure, but something stopped him. Something in what Catherine had said. Atrus smiled. Holding out the book, he took a step back, onto the lip of the fissure, the wind tugging at his cloak, a strange coldness at his back. A muscle beneath Gen's left eye jumped. Give it to me. Give it to me now. Atrus shook his head. Gen let the rock fall from his hand. Atrus, you are my son. I thought you'd already disowned me. Forgive me. I was angry. I thought... What? That I'd realize you were right? That I'd come to see myself as a god? But you need me, Atrus. Think of the experience I have, the knowledge. I wanted so much from you, so much, but you failed me. But I taught you, Atrus. Without me... No, father. Anything I ever learned that was of any value I got from Anna, long before I met you, you taught me nothing. The sky was growing lighter, the wind slowly dying. I should never have left you with her. She spoiled you. You would have ruined me just as you ruined everything you've touched. Yes, and then discarded me. No! I loved you, Atrus. Love? What kind of love locks its loved ones in a cell? That was only a test. All of it. Please, Atrus, there is still a chance for us. No, father. Whatever linked us once has been destroyed. You burned it with those books you burned. Little by little, you destroyed it. Well, now you've got the justice you deserve. You can stay here in your tiny island universe and play God with your creations. The word was firm and final. And as he spoke it, Atrus stepped back, out over the lip of the fissure, falling, tumbling down into that great expanse of stars, his hands gripping the book, opening the cover as he fell. What do you see, Atrus? I see stars, Grandmother. A great ocean of stars. Sunlight winked through the pines, casting shadows on the lawn. It was late now, but the boys were still out playing. Catherine stood on the porch, shading her eyes. Atrus came out of the library to join her. Can you see them? Don't worry. Anna's with them. Have you finished yet? No. I'm close, though. He kissed her, then went back inside and began to write again. It is strange now that I could have doubted her, and yet I was certain she had betrayed me. How was I to know how kind, how cunning my Catherine could be? My savior, my partner, yes, and now my wife. Atrus paused, recalling the shock he'd felt that moment when Catherine had revealed to him that Anna was behind it all. Only a remarkable woman would have done what Anna did following us down through the tunnels into Dunning. Anna had known that my father was not merely untrustworthy, but mad. All those years she had kept a distant eye on me, making sure I came to no harm at his hands, while she awaited the moment of my realization. Seeing my father carry me back to Kavir after my first flight, she had risked all, entering my father's study, meaning to confront him. But Gen was not there. 
It was Catherine she met. Catherine who, after that first moment of shock and surprise, chose to trust and to help her. So it was that Catherine had known me even before she met me on Riven. I should have known at once that Mist was not Catherine's, but how was I to know otherwise? I had thought Anna was lost forever. And how was I to know that, just as I made my preparations, so the two of them had made theirs? Pooling their talents, Anna's experience and Catherine's intuitive genius, to crack those seemingly cataclysmic events on age five in such a way that after a time they would reverse themselves, making Catherine's former home, now Gen's prison, stable once more. And the mist book? I realized the moment I fell into the fissure that the book would not be destroyed as I had planned. It continued falling into that starry expanse of which I had only a fleeting glimpse. I have tried to speculate where it might have landed, but I must admit that such conjecture is futile. Still, questions about whose hands might one day hold my mist book are unsettling to me. I know my apprehensions might never be allayed, and so I close, realizing that perhaps the ending has not yet been written. This has been a Random House Audiobooks presentation. Into Shadows Fire, the second book in the world of Strangers and Pilgrims. A fast-paced story of the continuing battle between light against dark and learning about the past will help fight against the shadows of the future. Over a decade has passed since the FTL ship has returned and John Vega and Nicolay Dan have once again joined the effort known now as the Union of Light to fight the newly formed Paganic Imperium. On the world of Sulia, help is needed. The Union must help save the people of the city of Galgani from being tortured and killed because of their beliefs. They must flee their city and begin an exodus across the stars. But the Empire will not let them go that easily, for they are the chosen people of the Lord of Light. But first, they must find a fleet of their own. Thermani Electric escaped with the Bathshi from the Shadow World and is now the Emperor of the Imperium. The only person he trusts, Sashiana makes her way back with the others only to question her own soul. As he remembers his own past and hearing of Sashiana's return, he is encouraged that now he can take his place in the galaxy. Look for Into Shadows Fire, pick it up at your favorite online bookstore. You have been listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast.